Welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I've said that so many times now, <laughs> I'm just like bored of saying it. The same Normally, way every time, yeah. yeah. Instead of like one of the episodes, I was like, "That's not spit; it's condensation." I'm just like <laughs> so bored of saying it. But welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Ryan Beach, as you know, and I am here in the office of Jeremy Wilson, trombone professor at Vanderbilt and uh, trombonist extraordinaire. <laughs> he has been. Uh, I guess I am lucky enough that he has been gracious enough to uh, invite me uh, into his space uh, to allow me to talk to him for a little bit and kind of pick his brain about stuff that's that he thinks about, stuff that's happened to him, projects that he's doing right now, just all sorts of stuff. We've had some pretty good uh, – I, I hope we haven't ruined – our podcast talk by talking before so. <laughs> you gotta save it for the show. Yeah, I think I think we can just come back to <laughs> it. You know, well, what if it's not as good? Oh, it'll be even better, actually. Yeah, well, that's also a possibility. We've already planted the seed, and now it's just like marinating. Yeah, we should probably just let it be what it is. I yeah, suppose. I think so. All right. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It, man, it's so great to have you here. I'm glad to be on this. Yeah. I really love what you do with this thing. Yeah, Jeremy, I was, I was recounting i suppose that you've you've been a follower for a while i think you've at least known Indeed. about it for a while and um that's very cool because uh, of course i love everybody who enjoys the content <laughs> that i'm putting out um and it's just cool to like be here with somebody who not only am i interviewing but also enjoys the thing that i'm that's putting right. out um so that's very cool now, usually I start these things with just talking about like somebody's history or somebody's mm -hmm. past, but uh, you have an interview with Karen Kubides. I'm so glad I know how to say her last name. <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, on her podcast, the, the Musician's Guide for Being... A Musician's Guide to Wellness. Well, uh, the, he has, she has two of them. You're not on that one. You're on Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Yeah, I think. that's right. Yeah. So Musician's Guide to Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. She's got, a, it's like your fourth, She's a, you're the fourth interview or something, fourth episode. And uh, there's just a lot of great stuff is covered in that. So instead of trying to hash some of that stuff out again, I'm sure we'll cover some similar stuff. But sure. you should just, if you want to know more about Jeremy Wilson, just go listen to that. Um, but we're going to cover some of that. And we're going to cover some more stuff. Anyway, so what I'd like to start with mm -hmm. is your mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. stuff. Um, there's a YouTube series that I saw mm -hmm. uh, that is one video dedicated to, I think, mind is first and then body and then spirit. And they're all related to how mm -hmm. to approach music, how to approach playing an instrument and sort of a philosophy behind that. And I would love for you to start with where this came from and then yeah. we should get into what it is. Yeah, sure. So the, the Body, Mind, Spirit whole series of videos came out of a lot of my experiences here in the Vanderbilt Trombone Studio with working with my students. And then, I, of course, I go all over the country, all over the world to do master classes or trombone days or things like that. And I just kept talking to people who had lost their why. Um, and I talked to my students a lot about keeping your why. And what I mean by that is, like, what's what drew you to this in the first place? Um, what keeps you in it? What's the reason behind the reason that you're doing this? Uh, is it really just about playing the piece perfectly? Is it just about getting a job? Or is there something beyond that 
do you actually love this? Do you, what are your, what are your motivations? What are your reasons? <clears throat> and I, I noticed a lot of people just had never really thought about it. And then I, and, and I, I, the more I went down that rabbit trail, the more I realized that that has a profound impact on everything we do, but especially how we prepare pieces of music. Um, and, uh, I have a, a, another series of videos that's going to come out kind of in the body, mind, spirit realm, where we talk about how this, um, affects, um, uh, audition prep, how it affects your practice session, all sorts of stuff like that. But we, we decided to start on the, the topic of how I prepare a piece of music because I, it was in conjunction with this standard repertoire project that I've been putting out on YouTube where over the course of the next few years, my goal is to basically record and put on YouTube all the standard rep for trombone. And each video is accompanied by like a, a video of tips and things that I think about when I'm preparing the, the piece. And one of the most common questions that I get, um, either through comments on those videos or just people that have seen the videos, it's like, that's great, but how do you decide what to do with a piece? Like, how do you arrive at that? conclusion. And, um, and so the body, mind, spirit process kind of grew out of that question. Uh, when I th really thought about like, actually, how do I do that? Um, it's like, well, I, I first start with what's the piece about? Um, what do I aim to communicate? Why does this piece exist? What's the point of it? Uh, and from that, that then teaches you the things that you need to then focus on. And then the things that you need to focus on, uh, then tell you what your body needs to do. Yeah. Um, and so it really just grew out of that, that question, just being asked that question a lot and always coming back. And it's like, well, I need to come up with some sort of way to explain this. And then it just kind of all came together all within a kind of in that one recording session, uh, with Karen, as we were putting that video, the original video together, it's like, well, how do you prepare a piece of music? Sure, let me just riff on that. And then it's like the body, mind, spirit process just kind of came out of that. Mm, interesting. And then, and then we ended up doing separate videos on each of those three components to go a little more in depth. Yeah. So like the creative aspect of it was something that just almost inspired. Yeah. In the moment. That's very interesting. Yeah. It kind of organically yeah. came about um, through a few different conversations that I've been having with people but then it just kind of clicked. It was like, what I'm talking about are kind of the three parts of a person, right? There, there's the physical body that makes the sounds. There's the mind that kind of tells you what, what you want to be doing. And, and the, but the spirit is like at the source of everything. Sure. Um, I had talked about it with some of my students in, in preparing um, for like auditions and things like what happens in the eight seconds right before you play an excerpt. It's like, uh, cause, and that grew out of the idea that like, as I, I had some students that were preparing for auditions and they would play like five or six excerpts and they all kind of ended up sounding the same. Like Mozart sounded like Wagner, sounded like Berlioz, sounded like Mahler. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do you get into these different spaces of these different composers and play excerpts sometimes that span over a hundred years of music history and be able to switch gears that, that quickly and it was like, well, get into the spirit of the composer um, and, uh, and basically engaging your spirit, focusing your mind, and then, of course, putting that into action with the body. So this sort of just sounds like 
not like a complicated version, but it would be like listening to a recording, right? This would be the old school way to talk about it, I suppose. Cause sure. this is like, it's not, what you're saying is not necessarily new, but it's definitely a different way to talk about a process. And so I'm going to try to break it down and see if there's any parts of this mm-hmm. that don't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> they don't already, that, like, not that it doesn't exist, but just that if it's like unique that we should, that we're, that I or somebody else is like missing in a typical way, we prep, we would, we would uh, listen to a recording. Mm-hmm. You might write down some words that you want to try to create, like, uh, you know, uh, picture that an exhibition could be proud or, mm-hmm. you know, buoyant or something like that, right? And then you have your way of breaking down the excerpt, making sure, you know, metronome, tuner, all that kind of stuff. And then ideally you're going to, you know, run it however many times, maybe put it in some, some lists mm-hmm. and then you're going to go play the audition. Right. And so break down that process in terms of mind, body, and spirit. Does that make sense? So which sure. parts are mind, which parts are body, which parts are spirit and, and how is, how is that process potentially lacking because you're thinking about it and not this holistic way, but just this procedural way. Does that Absolutely. make sense? Yeah, sure. So uh, a great way to, to think about this would maybe just be through a, a, a specific excerpt. So my very favorite excerpt on trombone is the solo from Mahler's Third Symphony. So uh, I, for many years and many of my students now, basically they start with executing the excerpt. I want to make perfect sounds and it's all in tune and it's all in time. But before they've done that, they haven't gone back and thought, okay, well, okay, so why did I select these sounds or why did I select this articulation? They haven't done the background research to think about what's the appropriate sound, what's the appropriate musical character for this for this excerpt. And so it's like my way of getting them to kind of back up a bit is like, okay, so how did you make that choice? Well, I made that choice because I listened to this recording. Okay, that's a good step. Or I made this choice because uh, so-and-so in a masterclass said to play it this way. It's like, okay, that's fine. That's valid. But where do you think that came from? Where did that advice come from? Or when you listen to your favorite recording of Mahler's Third Symphony, how do you think that musician made the choice? It's like, we need to back up from there. And that comes from understanding Mahler and who he is uh, and what his music says. And it's like, I, so I chose, uh, uh, I as a musician chose this sound, this articulation, this tempo, whatever, because I got into the spirit of the excerpt. I got into Mahler's head and Mahler's heart. So that's where I would start of like, that's where I go to the library and I listen to recordings, but I also do research and I think about what's this piece about? How does it make me feel? How do I hope the audience feels when they hear me play it? And I think that then determines everything that comes after that. But that would be a significant amount of work on an entire audition list, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be a significant <laughs> amount of work to research everything. Do you have... Well, I think I think it happens over the course of a career, ideally. So um, you're looking like, you're not looking for, I have to do all this for this particular audition. You're just saying, I'm going to do the best I can and I'll grow and I'll grow and I'll grow. Like you're looking at it long term. I think if it's an audition that I really want, I might go and do that for every... But I hopefully before I even get to that point where I'm taking a major audition or taking an audition for a position that I would want. Hopefully throughout my music education, I've been doing this process already. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a a couple really great teachers that um, 
helped me kind of get into this mindset before I ever got the list for the Vienna Philharmonic audition. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, through that process, like I already knew what Mahler's voice sounded like, or I had some clue about what Mahler's voice sounded like or what Mozart's voice sounded like. And then we did a lot of things that helped me kind of hone that. Um, for example, my, my teacher would pull an excerpt out of the bowl and, uh, let's say right of the Valkyries. Uh, and it's like, okay, so play right of the Valkyries as if uh, Bach wrote it. And it's like, what do you mean? Hmm. It's like play right of the Valkyries as if through Bach's voice. And you have to start to think like, okay, I'm not really sure the point of this, but okay, I'm going to try that. And then, so you would kind of play it a little differently and it makes you really think about, okay, what is Bach's voice? Okay. Play right of the Valkyries as if uh, Richard Strauss wrote it. So you can make a few other decisions and then we would go through two or three, you know, different composers. And then finally it's like, okay, now play right of the Valkyries as if uh, Richard Wagner wrote it. And it's like, okay, you start to think about the unique musical choices that you make for each composer. Mm -hmm. That's where the seed was planted for me about like, um, before, before I make any technical or musical decisions, I have to figure out what's appropriate to play this character. Like I said, though, if that's so much work, we're going to assume the vast majority of people are not. That's like an overwhelmingly huge <laughs> task, right? And so if that's an yeah. overwhelmingly huge task, how can we pare it down to something that somebody can feel like, all right, I want to do that, but I want to feel like I can do it, right? I can manage that yeah. instead of go learn about every composer that's ever, you know, <laughs> like what's a right. way that somebody can start or what's a way that you teach people yeah. to be able to start this process for themselves, like myself included. Yeah. I've learned just as an side, I've learned recently that part of the reason I don't like, or I've, I've been shy of score study is not because mm. I don't think it's useful. It's because it feels overwhelming. Like I don't really know what I'm yeah. looking for or listening for. And so trying to decide, all right, this time I'm going to watch my part. Okay. Next time I'm going to watch the French right. horn part, right? That at least gives me some structure with which I can try to follow along with what's happening. And then, okay, now I start to piece together. This is how I'm playing with somebody else. Oh, this is how my part interacts. So as an exercise with this particular thing, if we're starting at the very beginning and understanding different composers' voices, which mm -hmm. will certainly evolve as you grow as a musician, you're understanding right. how can somebody start this process so they can feel yeah. like they're making steps in figuring this thing out, but it's a manageable amount of work. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you get a massive audition list and there's 25 excerpts on there uh, and you want to start this kind of research on that, I mean, that would be a gargantuan task. So I think the easiest way is to find a thread to pull somewhere. Um, if you, let's say, so in this, in this uh, example of somebody who's got a list of excerpts, you're going to look through there and there's going to be some excerpts that you actually already probably do have a head start. There's somebody's music uh, that you've already played and you've already gotten to know their voice a little bit. There's gonna, but there's going to be things that like you've never heard of you have no idea who the composer is or you don't know anything about their music. Um, so like when I got the Vienna Philharmonic list, I had already had a head start on Mahler. I already, um, because of a random theory teacher in college that made us analyze every chord of all nine Beethoven symphonies, I really knew the Beethoven stuff. I, I, I mean, so it's like, but I had never, um, I had never really studied Wozzeck, for example. Uh, and I really didn't know that much about Hindemith. And so I went, and specifically went for those composers and sort of, sort of like tailored it, tailored it for where I was in my journey right then. 
if we're not talking about somebody who's under a deadline or a time pressure or like has a specific audition coming up, I think just a same version of, or a different version of what I just said of start with the composers that you know very little about, because there's, there's already going to be some that you know something about, and there's already going to be some that you, you already have done some thinking about. So some of those excerpts that you've been playing since you were in high school, you, you know, those pieces pretty well already. Um, you might just, and, and with, you know, one, one day of thought or, intentional uh, digging down a couple layers, you already know a lot about how you want that to sound. Um, it's just about connecting that with the composer's intent and also your feelings as the performer. Cause that's the other part of it as well. It's like, um, if I want to really play a character, I have to first know what that character is. And then I have to find a place in myself that can connect to that. So, you know, if we go back to the Mahler three thing, it's like, um, I, I'm not saying that in order to play Mahler three really well, you have to go, you know, read a 300 page biography of Gustav Mahler or whatever, but just like identifying with the core emotions of that excerpt. Yeah. So then if you're going to the composer as a source of information and knowledge, mm -hmm. how do you then develop if everybody did that equally and everybody knew what it was, everybody would play it exactly the same way. Right. And that, and that, logically speaking. So, where does your and then interpretation come in? If everybody is saying, "All right, Mahler three pose that Mahler three solo is kind of like anguish a little bit," right? There's sighing and mm -hmm. there's intensity in the thing. Okay, we understand this. There's um, there's a style we would play Mahler in. How do you develop like that? Somebody plays a little bit slower, a little bit faster, maybe with more articulation. Where does your own personality come in in this equation? Then? Well, I think it's it's that magical place where your informed research goes through the lens of your own life and experiences, right? So uh, I can't actually know what it's like to lose a child or to lose a sibling. I've never done that that happened to Mahler and he wrote music out of that place of tragedy and loss. Well, I haven't been there, but what I can do is try to connect it with something in my own experience, um, some sort of loss or try to imagine what it would be like to lose somebody that close to me and be processing that grief and that tragedy. It's a funeral march. That, that excerpt is a funeral march for those that don't know it. Um, and so it's like, I have to try in as best I can to connect with something inside me. And that's where those variations are going to come in of like this. I hang on to this note a little longer, but also when we come to Mahler, if we're talking about Mahler specifically, he was a micromanager. So he gave you a lot of clues also about specifically what to do, but it, it's, it can feel empty if it's not coming from that place of, emotional vulnerability. Yeah. It's just interesting to me because there's, I don't know the best way to say this, this uh, may be an idea that's prevalent that we should be true to the music or we should just be like, this is how we feel about it. And to find a middle ground, obviously like you're describing would just take a long time to feel like you've learned enough, but you had enough life experience to be able to connect with some of this stuff too. And so 
uh, listening to your your kids in there, it's like they've probably not had a ton of life experience, no. but they're still they're still putting it out there. So then, what do you like? What's your recommendation for when you teach your kids, and maybe for other students that are younger who don't have yeah. this life experience or they haven't had the time that other people have had just in living to do this, like? How do we encourage them that it's still worth it to go for it, even if it's not going to sound exactly the way because your skills aren't developed enough? Because I myself, this has been one of my biggest struggles when I was younger is I could hear it in my head, but mm-hmm. I couldn't play it that way. And so I felt like it wasn't worth going for <laughs> until I could do that. So how yeah. do we bridge that gap? As far as the how, that's going to be up to each individual person and and maybe the people that are helping guide them. But I think the main mental and emotional hurdle to get over is exactly what you just said about um, this is a, we're working on an art form that is a process and it will be a process and um, it takes time. Uh, if I want to, sometimes when I'm feeling a little bit like uh, uh, mischievous or, or if I want to be kind of sarcastic and somebody, you know, my students ask me like, so, you know, how do I get to that point where I can just you know, make the music that's in my head. It's like, okay, well, keep aiming for that music that's in your head and wait 10 years. That's basically the recipe, you know? Um, I don't necessarily mean that literally for everybody, but it, the point I'm trying to drive home is is like, it does take time. Um, you have to be a, a student of human emotion. Uh, you have to be a student of human artistic expression. Um, and you have to become basically a character actor to really step into those roles. Uh, and that, again, that takes time and it takes the honing of, it's a skill just like lip slurs or long tones are a skill. Yeah. Uh, it, it does take time. Um, and, and so the only, the only way to get good at it is to start and then keep going down that path. And so between the times of starting and 10 years later, you're there, right? What <laughs> what wins do we have that allow us to feel like we're making progress and that we want to stay motivated to keep going yeah. versus this is just not, I'm not making the music I want to make. This is not that great. And I get discouraged and maybe I want to quit. Like, what do we have to hang on to until we can start really expressing ourselves musically? Sure. In your opinion. Well, I can say that in my journey, like um, anytime I move the needle, that was that was that that was a little bit of extra juice to go the next step down the path. Uh, Any time that I that I made music that that was a little closer to what I had in my head, um, or honestly, um, one of the one of the really important things for me growing up was not me in the practice room, but me making music with other people. Those were the moments when I was connecting with other people and I could see that like, oh, we're communicating and it is possible to communicate with music and it is possible to enjoy this. Those were the things that kept me going because my individual like sitting in a practice room playing excerpts wasn't terribly fulfilling for a long time. Yeah, I just think we should change the conversation, generally speaking. Instead mm-hmm. of the conversation being like, I'm going to work really, really hard until I get to the point where I can play musically and then I'm there and I got it, which I think is yeah. often the conversation. I feel like we should just change it to just 
like you said, starting and then every day you're just looking for maybe 1% improvement, right? Like you were just describing moving the needle just a little bit, but then hanging your hat on like, that's enough, you know, and it's okay. And that we can't expect ourselves. I I don't know. I feel like I have been very hard on myself Mm -hmm. as many people I think who are successful are. And then you look back and you think like, did I need to do that? You know, did I need to beat myself up that much? Did I need to get so angry that I was going to throw a mute across or did throw (laughs) mutes, you know? And I just think to myself, I wonder what would have been, how it would have been different if I just would have allowed myself to not be good for a little while and thought, you know what? I'm in that part of the process. Yeah, this is where uh, what I preach to my students all the time is um, that there that the process is actually what we're here for. <laughs> that uh, if all you're chasing is that job you want to get or that piece you want to play or that album you want to record, that's a really great motivator, but that's not actually why we study music in the first place. We we study it for what we learn along the way and that there's actually a lot of beauty to be had and a lot of fun to be had in that process. Of course, there's also a lot of ugliness and a lot of disappointment or discouragement maybe along the way. But the word you use, expectations, is actually really huge because I I meet people all the time that it's like, um, if I'm not seeing or hearing tangible progress every day, that must mean I'm not doing something right. But of course, all the research tells us now that even when we're talking about acquiring a motor skill of any kind, that there are going to be plateaus, there are going to be ups and downs. It's the error part of trial and error practice, which is the part that, especially societally now, we're just really allergic to, right? Um, I, I, I don't mind the trial, but the error, it's like, because um, if I fail once or twice, that means I'm doing something wrong. That means I'm not cut out for this profession. That means I'm going to end up being a failure. And it's like, um, I was having a conversation with a student today that it's like, if you look at my progress, even now on the things that I'm trying to improve on, um, a- after I've had a decent career as a player and a teacher for a- quite a while, it's like, if you look at my progress on a chart, up close day to day, you're going to see it go up and down and up and down. It's going to look like a squiggly line, like one of those, um, almost like a polygraph test or something, you know, where it's like up, down, up, down, up, down. But that if you zoom back and get more of a perspective, if you look at what I've done over the last month or the last six months or the last year or the last 10 years, you're going to see an upward trajectory. It's like looking at the Dow Jones index, right? Yeah. I think a lot of people, okay, this is like a philosophy I have now and so like i don't know this isn't this isn't like like proven whatever you know but i think this two steps forward one step back model is very accepted but i wonder if it's the way it has to be and i Mm. wonder what if the model was at any given point in time when you're learning something what if you took four steps back and then didn't take any steps back after that. Like the idea and where I got this idea from was say you're in the gym and you're squatting Mm -hmm. and you plateau Mm -hmm. when you're squatting. Well, obviously when a plateau happens anywhere, it's just because there's a weak, a weak leak somewhere, a weak 
link <laughs> somewhere in the chain, right? Maybe it's your low back, maybe your mm-hmm. positioning is off. And, and if you fix that positioning so that it not only fix the positioning, but strengthen the muscles, then you won't have a plateau anymore because everything is locking in together. Then you just have to continue progressing. And of course, like that exists within some good days and some bad days. But what often people will do then is when they're struggling, they will realize, okay, I'm struggling here. This, 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 this is going wrong. I'm going to drop the weight way back and then work on those few things. Mm -hmm. And I think what happens, and I would love your opinion on this, is we in music don't do that very often. We don't drop (laughs) the weight back quite a bit and then just kind of go back to square one every now and then when things feel like we're hitting a plateau and ask, are all the chain links connected? Or is there some, is our air not connected here? Are our corners not firm? Or is there something with the way we're articulating? So sort of just drop back for a second and take take stock in what we're doing. And I think the more often we do that, then we break through that plateau. But then ideally speaking, if everything is set up properly at the very beginning, we could hypothetically never take any steps backwards. The progress would be slower, right. but we would never take any steps right. backwards. And the and so I, I think there's a couple points here. So I'll, I'll back up and say um, the sort of like looking at your progress is sort of like a up and down, up and down. That's really only using the the tangible audible results as the measuring stick. So you have to realize also that the what actually comes out of my horn on a daily basis is only part of the equation. Um, and of course, I hope obviously over time that that's only going up, that that's, that that's uh, only improving. But the tangible results are only a part of the process because my body is learning as I'm acquiring a motor skill and I'm acquiring a new motor skill, my body's having to learn and try new things. And some of those things are not going to work well, right? So like some of those things are going to be totally functional and do exactly what I want them to do. And some aren't. If a student is constantly having that and they're not seeing any improvement anywhere, I think it's because they didn't take a step back and they've skipped a rung on the ladder somewhere. Somewhere there's a weak link, as you were saying, there's a missing link in there. So it's like, Either you didn't spend enough time at a slow tempo or you uh, or you spent some time at a slow tempo and you got it right once or twice and you think, okay, I'm ready to go right back to where yeah, the tempo yeah. is. This is why slow practice equals fast progress. Um, but it's the slow it's the slow practice part that you know people aren't necessarily comfortable with. Well, it's not a, I actually believe that it's not even that they're not comfortable with it. It's just the actual discipline part of yeah. being of playing an instrument, playing it fast and running it is the fun part yeah. of playing an instrument. We're like, oh, I get to play this thing. I get to play music the way it is. The discipline part comes in is when you're playing something at half speed. Or I, I, I actually I practice in percentages now. I've been like posting about this on Instagram and stuff. Yeah. But I, I practice at actual percentages mm-hmm. of whatever tempo I want to go. My goal tempo, right? This is based off of uh, workout programs that mm-hmm. have your one rep max, right? And and they're programming this many reps, this many sets at this percentage based on what intensity and what load it is, right? So I kind of would do a similar thing. And what I, you know, every percentage has its purpose. You know, you have your slow tempos, your medium and your fast or whatever. But those slow tempos take so much discipline to actually be, <laughs> and this is where I think you best develop focus. Yeah. Is because, and you know, I would love your opinion on this too, but I feel that when playing slowly to maintain an intensity of sound and like total sustain, obviously breath is going to be a little bit different, but you know, you really can, I think 
start to be able to control every articulation. You can hear how every note connects to another note. You can observe, like if you're potentially observe crescendos and decrescendos and stuff like that, you know, but all of the details are on blast. And so I think instead of doing a model where we play it at tempo two or three or four Mm -hmm. or five or six times and we get, you know, sections of that lick, if we play something literally perfectly three times, that's (laughs) going to be so much better than... 10 or 15 average mediocre times. Exactly. I, I think um, I think you're exactly right. By uh, by taking something at a tempo uh, that that your body can do, right? You, it, it, trying to do something more than what your body's ready for, your brain is ready for, uh, especially when we're talking about motor skill acquisition, um, is doing more harm than good because it's very confusing to the body breaking it down, bringing it down to, um, to a level where you can do it perfectly will, will get you farther. Absolutely. than many more repetitions that are with, with, uh, with mistakes and, and undesired results in the middle of them. Cause it's very confusing to the neural pathways in your brain as to what you actually are aiming for. We all are told we should practice slowly when we're young and many of us just don't do it. When do you feel like you really embrace that this is the way to practice? For me, it was probably like two years ago. You know, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I should just actually practice this way. (laughs) Maybe there was some need, but maybe I was just tired of inconsistency in my playing. I'm curious, do you have like sort of a time frame where you were like, all of a sudden you're like, this is the, I got to do it this way. I can tell you exactly when it was the fall of my junior year of, of undergrad, um, where my teachers had always told me, you know, no, you really have to go slower and you have to stay there. Like I would slow things down kind of, and then I would do it a couple times slowly and have some success. And then I would just go right back to the performance tempo. I would just get really impatient. Um, and there was this, uh, the, the Jacques Castoret sonatine for trombone. There's this lick in the first movement, um, that is just super awkward and the slide pattern is weird and the note pattern doesn't lay in the ear really well. And I finally just got so angry at that lick <laughs> that I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to actually play this really slowly. So the, the lick eventually is like, right. It's got a weird articulation pattern, a weird slide pattern. And I finally just went dumb. Dum 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 da 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 da, and I was like almost being sarcastic with it. Yeah. But I played it perfectly. Right. Like super slowly. Yeah. And then I was like, I wonder what happens if I just did that another few times. And then I actually took my time and I stayed there and I stayed in that discomfort. And all of a sudden, like, you know, I because I've been working on this lick for weeks at like a. 50% 50% tempo or something like that, you know, but it, I wasn't actually getting any, any better. But when I stayed at that really ridiculously insult your intelligence tempo, like it was actually perfect. And then I started to crank up the metronome little by little. And then all of a sudden, like I could play the lick yeah. even at the fast tempo. Yeah. I just think unless it's outside of your ability, range, right? If when sure. it's physically right. outside of right. your ability range, this will not apply to this. But generally speaking, I think most 
um, mistakes or issues that people have are just from a lack of understanding of yes. what's happening. Like they don't understand the rhythms. They don't understand the harmony or what notes there are or whatever it is. And slowing it down and actually like learning and ingraining that at that speed makes it so when you speed it up, you know what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, it, and again, um, I hate to keep coming back to this, but it's like, this is what we know even just neurologically. This is how yeah. our brains acquire a motor skill. Right is by achieving the desired result at some level and then and then doing that over and over yeah. to the point that the brain makes it automatic. So you were practicing this way as a junior in undergrad, right? Yeah, it, it, I didn't apply it always. I only used it on licks that I got really mad about. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you so do <laughs> you, you know, feel but yeah, do you feel that embracing that kind of practice system relatively early in your life, it was a, uh, a, a, I guess, indicative of the early success that you've experienced? I, I think for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, even earlier than that is, you know, kind of bringing it back to this body, mind, spirit thing. Even earlier than that, I was very fortunate that I had teachers that talked to me about music and about um, uh, how trombone playing serves music rather than the other way around, mm -hmm. where music serves, you know, to my technique or whatever. Um, and so I, you know, even the, cause, cause you know, you were talking about the gargantuan task of changing a way a person thinks about preparing a piece of music or, or really getting to that spirit of things. It's like, it is a gargantuan task, but I got an early start on it. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, and that you got your 10,000 hours and earlier, right? That whole idea. Yeah. And I just, that's something I think is really important as a takeaway from, for anybody listening right now that's thinking, man, what can I learn from Jeremy Wilson? Well, one of the things we can learn from Jeremy Wilson is if you practice smart early yeah. and just decide that you're going to do that. Yeah. Like, don't be somebody who sits there and goes like, oh, I don't know how to practice efficiently. I don't know what I'm doing, but like, maybe someday I will. <laughs> so like he were doing it early and he won the job in Vienna. I, I, I assume shortly after that. It was your senior year, right? Or were you, you were in school? I was still? a first year master's student. Okay. I was 24. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, shortly after that, you, you had won, you know, one of the biggest jobs in the world. And so let's break it down for somebody what this means, because mm -hmm. I would love your input. So what's a way that somebody, I mean, slow practice might be the answer, but what's a way that somebody who is like, I don't know anything that I'm doing at all right now. <laughs> yeah. What is deep practice? What is efficient practice? Mm -hmm. What's one change they can make today in their practice that's going to allow them to experience some level of uh, better, more efficient, deeper practice that will, that will last? Yeah. Uh, I think what we were just talking about, um, at whatever... Whatever you're struggling with, be it, be it uh, the speed of something, the range of something, whatever, backing it down to the level that you can do it, you, you always have to use what is working as a bridge to get to what isn't working. And if something isn't working, then it means that you've skipped a rung in the ladder or you've skipped a link in the chain, as you were talking about. What's the weak link? Backing up to find what that is and patching that link or putting that rung back in the ladder is something that even today can help somebody move the needle on some part of their playing. Yeah. I guarantee that every young player out there uh, that is struggling with a piece of music or a technical um, uh, task that they're wanting to, to accomplish, that there's some part of their playing where they've gone faster than their brain was ready for. Yeah. Um, and this is where it's essential that people understand that 
there obviously there's knowledge that goes into what we do, but what we do isn't a knowledge-based activity. It's a motor skill. It's in the same part of the brain as riding a bicycle, hitting a baseball, eating with chopsticks. It's, it's, um, it's acquired in the way that those things are, mm-hmm. are acquired. Right. It's not acquired in the same way that you learn the year that Charlemagne, you know, took over whatever, you know, um, it's, uh, and, and also what makes it difficult for a lot of people is that, um, the, it, it, it takes so many hours to become world-class. I'm not sure about the 10,000 hour thing, but the, you know, that's what the research says, I think right? The, the talent code, mm-hmm. I think it's the talent code talks about, it may not be 10,000 hours, but uh, 10 years is a pretty common amount of time yeah. to see that somebody has been in their dark years, mm-hmm. so to speak. Right. It was like Mozart started writing when he was five and then his greatest hits started when he was 15. Right, exactly. Yeah, so whether it's 10,000 hours or not, it seems it, like 10 years it, is- it, it takes a certain amount of time, right? right? And for, it's a long for, time. For somebody to, to develop into a great player. Well, um, when somebody gets started- you know, it's going to take that amount of time, just whenever that is, if they start at five or they start at 25. Yeah. Um, the problem or, or what, what are, what's difficult for a lot of people in terms of their expectations is that our cultural and societal sort of blueprint for when you start studying, when you finish studying, when you are supposed to air quotes here, get a job. Um, that is a very kind of set timeline, unfortunately, where it's like, um, well, you go to middle school at this age, you go to high school at this age, you go to college at this age. And about this age range is when you should start getting a job. That's what we're told anyway, right? Well, that may or may not line up with where you are in the process of becoming a world-class musician. And so if, you, if you're somebody who got a late start, um, you may be only halfway through that process and you may see other peers that are out, you know, and, but they're in a different place in the process. They just happen to be the same age as you. So again, when we're talking about a knowledge base thing, um, it's like, yeah, most seniors in high school should have this writing ability, should know this about math or this about science or this about history. But a senior in high school on the trombone or the trumpet or the horn or something, um, may have started at a different place, may have had a different set of circumstances. And so this is where we have to try to dissociate what our culture and our society says about where we should be and where we actually are in the process and learn to accept that and just meet ourselves where we are and try to go to the next level of where we are at that time. Um, somebody says something to me, something that was really important for me at that stage in my life, which was I was getting in this place where I was like sort of regretting like, not starting earlier, or I wish I had, or I wish I had done this earlier or whatever. It's like, well, you know, the best time to plant a tree was like 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is right now. Right. Right. Because all you can do is just like, once you become aware of that, just start where you are and keep getting better. Yeah. I really like this idea that, um, I was saying to Karen in our interview earlier that I've read like four books this month, mm-hmm. but that's the most, that's, that's the four that's the amount of books I've read and the last ten years in one month is also four books. <laughs> so I only have a couple of resources right now to draw inspiration from. But one of them had this kind of idea, I don't think it's a direct quote, but had this idea that 
when we start, we give birth to ourselves. I thought that was such a cool quote <laughs> yeah. because it's kind of true, right? Mm-hmm. And he that book is talking about it in terms of starting anything, yeah, right? But if we put it in a musical context and we would say, when you start learning a piece of music, say you're afraid of it because it's high or it's fast or something like that. Well, find a place that you can start mm-hmm. and then you have a place that you can build from. Yeah, And so, exactly. yeah, I don't even, at this point in my playing, if I know it or I don't know it, if I've been working on it, if I've worked on it before or whatever, the very first week of my practice, the very first day, no matter what, is always at 50% maximum. Yeah. If I can't play it at 50, I, I spend that first practice session working it up to 50% yeah. and then yeah. I stop. Yeah. And then the next session is at like 55%, you know, and, and I can play a lot of stuff. So it's like, do I need to do that? I don't know, but why skip that step? You know, for, <laughs> right. that's how I feel about it now. Why would I skip that step? I kind of like playing at 50% tempo now. <laughs> it's it's like, it's harder yeah. for me. It's yeah. harder to focus. The stakes go up because I feel like I can play perfectly. So all of a sudden I go from, oh, I accept mistakes to if I focus really hard and I, everything is dialed mm-hmm. in, I might be able to play this perfectly. Yeah. And that's way more exciting to me yeah. than like, oh, I'll accept some... I mean, of course, that's why I was going to say something earlier too, where I don't remember what you, what you said to make me think this, but, um, it's maybe of some sort of observable, like I would like to see that the needle is moving, but when you get to a certain point, like the needle stops moving and it's not like you can't improve. It's just the human inconsistency that exists is going to make it. So like a performance is never going to be perfect. And you know what I mean? So we can't, at some point we then have to stop judging ourselves based on even like, did I miss notes? Was it out of tune? At some point that has to, we have to stop being that for the metric of improvement or success in a given performance. Exactly. Because, um, well, first of all, I think as we get better, also our perceptions just change, right? And our and and we are also more uh, perceptive of what what is good and what is what isn't good, or what it what matches what we want and what isn't. I had a student a couple weeks ago that was like, "I feel like I used to be better," and it, and it's like from anybody that knows the student, it's like you know four years ago. Uh, to now it's like, he's so much better, mm-hmm. but he's like, I feel like I used to, I feel like I was better when I was a freshman. And then we pulled actually a, a, a recording of the student as a freshman and listened to it. And he's like, Oh, you no, uh-uh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't better. I'm much better now. And it's like, but what's changed is your perception of what you want or like your standards. Exactly. Yeah. And your standards. And so it's like, um, <clears throat> so there, there's that, but also it's like, um, as you get better and you get to a certain, a certain point of like being able to play and the notes and the rhythms and the range and the endurance that you have, you start to then do more challenging music. And so it's like, you know, uh, again, I tell my students, you know, uh, if they do a junior recital or a senior recital and they're like, I don't know, I just feel like maybe I should have picked easier music so I could have gotten through it, you know, perfectly or whatever. It's like, look, if I, if I let you pick a senior recital of music that you could get through perfectly, then I'm not doing my job. Sure, It's my job to challenge you. And we need you, you need to be at that place where it's like, you have the ability, you have the skills to play it perfectly, but it's a, enough of a challenge, both musically and technically, that there are there is some risk involved there. Well, and we also, it's so clear that kind of mindset comes from a, a, a results-based 
right thing, right? Like the 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 goal of the whole thing is not I want to improve a ton. Yeah. The goal is I don't want to sound bad on my senior recital, right. which is valid, right? But I think it's putting the priority on the long on the wrong thing, especially exactly. if you want to do this for the rest of your life, right? Because at some point you're gonna run out of goals. I mean, <laughs> exactly. You know, unless you're somebody crazy, like you know, Sergei Nikaryakov is this trumpet player who plays <laughs> violin concertos. But like, yeah, yeah. what's next for him, right? What's next? <laughs> he recorded all the trumpet concertos. He could do everything and now he's now he's you know playing the Haydn cello concerto and he's playing this piece called Ad Absurdum which is I don't know like <laughs> six minutes of atonal double tonguing super fast like right. what is possibly next for him right. and I'm sure he'll find it but I guess the idea is that guy is also clearly embraced like a I'm just gonna keep growing. I'm going to keep getting better. Exactly. I'm going to challenge myself and find a new level and keep going. And I think often we let ourselves off the hook because we look at that as the exception. Oh yeah. And, but what if we look, all of us looked at it like, that's the rule. Like we mm -hmm. aren't going to just, and I, sorry, I'm rambling here, but also I think the orchestral culture is pervasive in this idea that you hit this orchestral job and you've like got it. And right. that, that repertoire is significantly easier, generally speaking for at least for at least trumpet players and yeah. probably trumpet trombone players than some of the hardest concertos we have. So then you're like, oh, I got this thing. I can do the thing. And we stop thinking what's next. Exactly. So, I mean, so many people are just, I, I just want to get good enough to get that job or, you know, be able to make it through an audition perfectly or whatever. And, and then it's like, they never really consider what's past that. It's like, uh, it's like climbing a mountain. Um, I, I tell my students all the time, we're, we're climbing a mountain that has no summit. And if that bothers you, then do some soul searching because or the, like get out of or the get game out of this because, because that's yeah. what it is. It's like if you're looking if you're looking for a career path where you can get to the pinnacle and you're just there. Like congrats, you're the best at music. That's never gonna happen. Right. And uh, and even those people that feel like they reach the pinnacle of their particular instrument, they'll just go like learn more instruments or like you see these people that are like, well, I'm gonna be a composer now or I'm gonna conduct yeah. or I'm just you know or just go on to you know some other part. To me, that's one of the exciting things about music is it's a it's it's an ocean that will never run dry. Yeah, it's like yeah. you will never learn all there is to know about this. And to me, that's an invigorating thing. I want to be in a career and in an art form where I will always be learning about this and, and always have room for improving at this, no matter how long or how good I get at this. Um, I, to me, and, and that, that can be deflating for a student if they're, completely results oriented or if they've bought into this, like I'm going to get to this certain point and then just be done. Yeah. You know, uh, cause often people get that and then it's not what they thought or it's not as fulfilling as they thought. Um, or they realize like, Oh, this is okay. This is oddly unfulfilling. Well, we, yeah. Well, I think, and it's an understandable thing. I, I feel I was that way I, in my life. I would just, all right, I got to fix these things and I got to work on this part of myself. And then I'd, I'd become happier or whatever. And then yeah. I'd be like, cool, I figured it out. Now I'm going to coast. And <laughs> yeah. I would coast myself all the way until the next, you know, dip yeah. down. And then you, I started, it took me so long to realize I just got to do this stuff every day. Like it does, <laughs> it's not going to end my desire, yeah. like it, my desire for ensuring that I am doing things that will 
protect my, I don't even call it happiness. I don't really like that word, but um, my contentment yeah. or my peace. I like those words yeah. a lot better because I feel contentment can exist if you're unhappy. Yeah, for like sure. You can be unhappy, but I still feel like you can be like, it's okay, Absolutely. but this still sucks. And so I, I feel like it took me too long to do that. And I feel like in music, we just want to get to a comfortable place. Yeah. And every, I think people in life, I'm learning that. And it's understandable, right? You like want to work hard so you can then enjoy at some point. But I think, you know, if you shift your mindset to the joy as a little bit in the struggle yep. and then you get these moments of reprieve when you play a concert and then you're back to the struggle. I think that's a cool way to look at it because then it, it puts your mind in the place of like really what a career in music to be successful, especially needs to be. Absolutely. I, I go back to that mountain metaphor that I was using and that I use with my students. It's like you're climbing a mountain with no, I, I think I came up with the metaphor after I watched all these documentaries about climbing Everest. <laughs> uh, Cause I just think that's so cool. But um, it's like, you're climbing this mountain that has no summit, but every now and then you need to stop and you get to stop and make camp and turn around and enjoy the view. Right. Mm. And all of a sudden it's like the higher you've climbed on that mountain, the greater the view gets. Uh, and I'm going to make base camp and I'm going to have a concert or I'm going to record an album and I'm going to bask and I'm just going to enjoy like, oh my gosh, this is amazing up here. Uh, and then I turn right back around and I keep climbing up to the next mountain, yeah. you know, the next, uh, the next camp. Right. Um, it, and there's beauty in that struggle. It's not only when you turn around and enjoy the view that, that, that that's beautiful. That's just, that's enjoyable. That's a reward. But then, then you look down the mountain and you look where, look at where I've come from. And there's beauty in that too. And there's beauty in the everyday. Yeah. Um, that's where, that's where connecting this back to my why is so important for me because I actually don't roll out of bed in the morning to come do long tones and lip slurs. Um, I roll out of bed in the morning to make beautiful music and hopefully leave this world a better place than I found it. And lip surge and long tones are the way I get to that, mm -hmm. right? Those are the, those are the means by which I get to the end. And so for me, it's like, it's just super easy for me to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day part of it and lose that why. And so that's why I have to do everything I can every time the horn touches my face to remember why uh, that I'm doing this in the first place. What does pushing your limits, uh, what does that look like for you right now? For me, it's like range. Um, I, I want to... Um, I want to expand the range that I am comfortable with. Um, I, I've recently been um, around some musicians that have a wider range than I do, and they have a, a much more access to different music than I do. So I just, I want access to that music. Uh, we were we were recently, uh, I was at the Liexa Brass Week in Finland, and it was like, um, we did this trombone quartet where we did the, uh, uh, the Schumann... Um, uh, piece for four horns. Concert Stück. Yeah, the concert Stück for for four horns, and we did it in the same key. And and Matt G from uh, his principal in the Royal Philharmonic uh, was playing the top horn part, and he just had this unbelievable, like crazy high range, and the same range as, as a high horn, and it was just gorgeous. And I thought, man, I want to be able to do that because like there's pieces that I could play and there's music that I could make if I had that. Um, so, so I'm working actively on range right now. Um, Can I interrupt you and ask you another question? Yeah, absolutely. About that? What role do you think hearing him do that had in your desire to develop it? 
like, would you have had the same desire to develop that if you hadn't had some inspiration of hearing somebody else do something that you couldn't do? Or are you, are you able to be a self-starter in, in that, in those ways? It just kind of depends on what the thing is. Uh, but usually for me, it's like some sort of musical spark. Um, there's there, I hear something that I want to be able to do and I go, okay, I will do whatever it takes right. to be able to do that. But as opposed to you haven't heard it, you're just like, I wonder if you could do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think, I think the both types exist. I think Absolutely, there's yeah. people who just like make something up to try, but I think the vast majority of uh, majority of us mm -hmm. exist on ignition, right? This word that means like yeah. you, you're inspired through seeing somebody else do something that sure. it's like, why all of us play an instrument, right? It's so like almost all of us play an instrument is we a parent or we were in band or we saw a concert or we had some exposure to some sort of music yeah. and we thought I could do that. So I'm just curious. Yeah. How, what, what role that plays even in your development now, as you are a professional yeah. at the, at the highest level, like even what role kind of inspiration in that way plays for you still at this point? For me, I, I just personality wise, I haven't tended to be the guy that's like, uh, wonder what's around that corner and, 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 and wanted to chase after something with without some sort of reason to, or just because it's there. I just wonder if it's there. Uh, I wonder what would happen if I had a really great double G. Like, I just, it, I, for me, it, there has to be a musical reason behind it. Okay. And again, like you said, I, I know that there are people like that that exist. And I think those people are the people that go and they'll start to break boundaries. And, you know, Jürgen van Rien just decides to play this crazy uh, Ervo piece piece. And it's just like, I don't think it would have even occurred to most of us to even try that. Right. And then he, and then he does it. And that takes the instrument a new place. Yeah. Um, from a technical perspective, that's not going to be me. Like I I'm going to hear somebody else do something and go, Oh, I want that too. Uh, maybe from a musical perspective, I don't know. Um, but even then it's like, whenever I've tried to, what I've tried to do with the standard rep, for example, is like, tried to not play it in the most trombone way possible. I, I, I've tried to run it through the filter of like, what would the great string players or what would a great piano player or a great singer do with this piece if it had not been written for trombone, but written for tenor voice or something, you know? But even then it's like, I'm still kind of running it through the filter of my musical heroes. So would you say the mind, body, spirit, uh, project now you're that will and then the addition that will that yeah. will come soon would you say this you feel like this is maybe a or the or a start of a contribution to the world that's like uniquely you you know what i mean because what you're talking about is very inspiring but it's like kind of a we understand that to be a path of like yeah. people take. I'm just curious, cause it sounds like we're using YouTube and using videos to get the message out there, but something that's uniquely the way you think, how, like how important is that? Is that part of what you do to you in addition to the part that we all kind of understand? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say, yeah, if there's anything that's, that I'm kind of doing right now that is maybe going to end up being kind of my thing or whatever, or my way to kind of break new ground or, or maybe just say things in a way that hasn't been said before. It might be this body, mind, spirit thing because it, it just sort of, but it, even that was a product of a lot of different things that I have been thinking about over the years or interesting points that people had made over the years. And, um, and like I said, a lot of it came about just because 
I kept in my own playing and with my students and people that I would work with, it's like, okay, it feels like you've got the notes and rhythms and it feels like you're very focused and very diligent on this. But have you ever thought about like, how do you, how do you feel about the music or how have you thought about how the audience is going to feel about the music? Cause I felt like that's what made the difference for me in my audition was like, there were tons of great players there um, and tons of great people who, you know, had really focused and had done all their homework and everything. But I felt like in the moment, uh, what made the difference was that I was able to connect with something emotionally in the people that were listening to me. Yeah. I mean, this is so difficult to quantify really, right? Because it's such a personal thing. And when I interviewed Barbara Butler, she described that there's kind of three stages of this. The first is listening, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of like hear what it should sound like. And then there's the internalizing, the I now understand it. And then there's the performing, right? Right. And I feel internalizing is the hardest step. You know what I mean? Like you can listen to it and you can, you can try, that's like you listen to it and you're like, I totally understand what that sounds like. And then you play it and you can be thinking you're doing exactly that, but you have and internalized it to the point where you can then exactly reproduce that kind of thing. So do you feel like my, the mind, body, spirit is really a help in like, not, I mean, it's a help with all three of them, certainly. Mm-hmm. So would like, I'm just trying to unpack this a little bit more here. Um, it just sounds like the, inter- like you're, you, you're finding a system with which you can internalize it so that you can have confidence that when you yes. are performing it, you know, that it's what you want it to be yes. versus having that thing of like, oh, that what, like I really tried for an example, I played this piece called Rustiques for my undergrad teacher. And it's got this really beautiful lyric section in it. And I was playing it and, and he was like, what? It kind of a similar question. He's like, what's going on in your head right now? <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm just really trying to think of Pavarotti singing. And he just was like, there's no possible way that you are thinking of Pavarotti and then playing it like that, right? Kind of not a musical, but not nearly as dramatic as what Pavarotti would do, right? And so that was my problem is I, I had listened mm-hmm. and I really believed I was doing it. But that middle step of internalizing and understanding like what it yeah. means to reproduce that, do you feel like this kind of mind, body, spirit would be, the most helpful for translating and internalizing or is it more, even more than that? It could be. Um, I, I think the goal for me was having some sort of, uh, system or some sort of, um, process that you could rely on that would always connect the physical with the why. Um, I had a few reasons for wanting to do that. I think it actually helps people prepare their music better and more intentionally with a musical goal in mind rather than I want to play this piece to play it or I want to play this piece to get all the notes right and check all the boxes. I want to play this piece to communicate something. What I'm trying to do is just create that habit of like every piece I play, I'm wanting to communicate something. The other part of it is um, if I'm talking about the body, mind, spirit process, like right before I play anything, so if I'm going back to this this Mahler thing, it's like um, if I if I'm getting ready to perform the Mahler three excerpt, either in an audition or just in my practice session, even if I go through this body mind spirit process in that eight seconds or whatever, um, I think what's this music about? What do I hope that it that it communicates? 
that means I need to focus on this and this. That means I need to do this technically go. Then that gives me a process to go through go through whether I'm in the practice room or I'm actually in the most high pressure environment right, right. ever. So, so you can, so you can, uh, make that normalized. So exactly. you have like a thing. I, I think this is hugely important. Uh, and we learned this from sports right. science and stuff exactly. like that, right? Like you, you, we need to train in a way that mimics what we need to do, which yes. I think, honestly, I feel for many people, myself included for a lot of years, that was where I and other people fail. It's not that we don't try hard enough or we don't practice good enough or something like that. It's just, we're not practicing in a way that looks like what we want to perform like. Exactly. And so we haven't really at all ever ingrained what the way we want to perform. So when we perform, it's this holistically new experience right? because we practice something or we, we give ourselves 15 t- tries exactly to, to do it. Well, I, and I, I want to train myself and my body and I want to train my students that, um, this is so a natural part of what they do that every time the horn touches their face, they're thinking, what do I want to communicate? What do I need to focus on? What do I need to do that? they can do that and rely on that even in a high pressure situation. Cause very often what happens is we get into an audition or we get into a high pressure performance situation. And all we're thinking about is the body. All we're thinking about is just like, get the notes right, make, make it happen. Right. And we completely forget the other parts of the process. And so I'm hoping that if they can go through this process and this is what I actually do now, uh, whenever I go on stage to perform anything right uh, at, you know, to the audience, it looks like I'm emptying my water. Uh, it's not spit. It's just condensation. <laughs> condensation. I'm emptying my <laughs> condensation and I'm taking a deep breath and I'm getting my stand right. And I am doing all those things, but mentally what's going on for me is I'm, engaging my spirit, focusing my mind and relaxing my body. Um, so that all three parts of me, that all of me is ready to make music. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I had another thought. This happens to me so much. <laughs> I, I have like a thought and then I'm just listening <laughs> and, and then enjoying it just goes. And it just goes, man. Yeah, I think it was something along the lines of the sports science. And then we were talking about uh, preparing the way that you practice. And then you're like, that's what I did. It's a reliable thing. I don't know. We should, um, I'm curious about then trans, we should talk about this other big part of what we were talking about earlier, which was um, identity basically. Yeah. And um, for those that don't know, I don't really want to cover this because this is covered in pretty big detail on uh, yeah. Karen's podcast. But basically, I mean, you can tell it, but I will tell it instead because this is my podcast. So I'll do whatever <laughs> I want. Do it. Uh, it's your party, man. I mean, we've all basically pieced it together through this thing. When when Jeremy was uh, 24, he won a job with the Vienna Philharmonic. What was second, first, third? It was a Vexel Posano position. So it was um, it was second, moving up to first when needed, but also like utility, like sec- um bass trumpet and euphonium. You just and played like everything basically. Yeah. He's 24. And then when you were 29, you uh, applied for and became the professor at Vanderbilt. That's right. So this is a bold move <laughs> <laughs> in our industry. Yeah, for sure. Because, um, yeah, I, I, I've just talked to enough people now that I know that th- me thinking this is not just me thinking this, but many of us have 
put uh, an orchestral job at the end of the line of the top of the top of the things that you could do. And I even think like you see universities sort of rewarding this, right? Where they'll hire three or four. um, And it's like nothing wrong with those players. They're great players and great teachers, but it's sort of even saying like, if you go down the, the teacher route, that's great. But like, there's another step above that, which is, you know, if you won the job. So it's even, and again, there's nothing wrong with the players and all that stuff. It's just like, we have done this as a culture. Right. And uh, I've been victim of it where I believe that that's the only thing that mattered. That's where I wanted to end up because that's when people will care about me, you know, and like I'll be valuable at that point. But you kind of bucked tradition a little bit and decided that it wasn't right for you. So I think we should start with, if you just quickly want to go over the reasons that something like that would enter your mind sure. and um, where how, how you got to that decision. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the very beginning of my career, what I wanted to be was a teacher. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, it's like, I'm going to be a high school band director or something like that. Um, I think people that are wired to be teachers have something in them um, that it's hard for people to understand if they don't have that thing. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a drive to pour into other human beings and to help people. Um, obviously not saying that non-teachers don't want to help people, don't want to, but yeah. it's like, it's it just goes, a different drive there. It goes, it goes to a different level of drive. It's like, this is what I want to do with my life is, uh, pour into people and help people. Um, and then we get into the music world and it's like, I got into college and I actually was a double major in, in music ed and performance. So I kind of got to see both sides of this argument or, or, or this sort of the view of teaching where it's like those that are, that are kind of wired to do that have such a high view of teaching. And a lot of performers have this view of that teaching is like kind of settling or um, that, you know, if you can do it, then you do it. And if you can't do it, then you teach it. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, those who can't teach is the old thing. Right. And, um, but that's, that's what I, was wired to do from the very beginning. But then I, I started to kind of go down this path of like, actually I love performing too. And I have this desire in me to share music and to play music. And so like I have that equal desire in me. So that's when my, my focus began to shift towards not being a high school band director, but doing what I'm doing now, because these jobs are kind of built so that you are obviously teaching Um, but you, the expectation is that you're also going to be a performer. And it's like, to me, that's like tailor made for me because I get to go and make music, but I equally get to scratch that itch of like, I want to pour into people. And, um, so when I entered school at the university of North Texas for my master's degree, it was like, that's, that's what I want to do is I want to be a college trombone teacher. Um, and, but then of course the Vienna Philharmonic comes knocking. It's like, you're not going to say no to that. Yeah, of course. And that's like half of me It's is a performer. Like I love making music, but I had never really considered being a full hundred percent performer. Well, it's also such a huge change in like locate, you know, to leave Absolutely. probably, you know, you're from Tennessee, right? From Tennessee. I yeah. was living in Texas at the time. My wife is from Tennessee. Um, she had never been out of the country before we went for my audition. Um, and then we go over there and we, we get, we get a taste of what it would be like. And then I win the audition and it's like, 
well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. And, and what an amazing opportunity that is. It's like, um, in my mind at the time, it was like, well, I'm, I've been trying to keep my options open. So this is a great thing. And I can go, I mean, when you're a student, you're not making money. You're not, you know, able to support a family. And, uh, I've been married for a couple of years. We were wanting to maybe have kids. It's like, okay, well, I mean, gosh, I mean, it's an amazing orchestra. I get to kind of go see the world and, uh, let's do that. And I mean, I would never have said no to that. Did you think when you first got the job that it would be a, like a lifelong? Yeah. Interesting. I really did. When I got the job, um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to be here the rest of my career. I'm going to raise my kids here. I'm going to retire from here and I'm just going to be like a Austrian American now, like, or an American Austrian. I don't know. <laughs> um, and, uh, it wasn't until, I don't know, it, it start. we started to see, that that wasn't going to be the case probably within 18 months or two years, something like that. When the shine starts to wear off a little bit and you start to actually see what it would be like to raise a family there. That was also at the time that I, um, that our, our son was born and that changes perspectives. Whenever you have kids, you know, it's like, well, could I actually raise my family here and be happy here for another 35 or 40 years? Um, and it was like, actually, no, I don't think I don't think this is what I want to do, and I started to miss teaching. Um, from the time that I started college, I had had students, and I had been teaching in some shape, form, or fashion. And uh, it was you know two or three years into playing in the Vienna Philharmonic, it was like I, I really miss teaching. And so I started to actually investigate maybe taking on a teaching position in Vienna. But the way that orchestra works, it works so much because you're in both the Vienna Philharmonic and the state opera orchestra. And there's just so much work and then a lot of touring and stuff. And then also the fact that I wasn't an Austrian. So when you're a non-Austrian, it can make it a little more difficult to, you know, like go get a teaching position at an Austrian, you know, school. Yeah. And okay. uh, so it was like, okay, so I'm not going to really be able to teach very much here. But uh, uh, there was an exchange program called IES. And actually some of our students here from Vanderbilt take advantage of this program now uh, in Vienna where students would come from universities in the US and a lot of them would come over and study with me. Um, and so I would just have like one student at a time. Um, I had a couple of students from Indiana. I had one from Eastman. I had, uh, you know, there was like, really good students from good schools and they would come over and study abroad in Vienna for a year, for a semester. And they would like take, you know, I don't know, half a dozen lessons from me. And I started to go like, you know what? I'm really enjoying this. I really love this and I'm good at this. And it started to plant that seed of like, you know, if I ever did get the chance to do a teaching position, I would, I think that's what I would want to do. And it wasn't until about five years in that it was like, actually, yeah, that is what I want to do. That is, yeah, that is the direction that I want to go, uh, that I started to, and I wasn't necessarily actively trying to get out, but it was like, if an opportunity comes up, I'm going to go for it. And then of course it just happened that the, the opportunity that came up was this amazing university, basically in my hometown. Do you feel that having five years in arguably the world's best orchestra helped you make that decision. You know, like you basically knew it wasn't gonna, there was no above that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe if you, if you had won a job in 
hypothetically speaking, a smaller orchestra, you yeah. know, like a, like a mid, you know, some where there's like, you know, more levels above it, but right. you're still playing good music, you right. know? Do you feel like if you did that and then came to Vanderbilt, do you feel like you'd be here being like, oh, I wonder... I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. That has crossed my mind. Uh, the fact that I was in one of the absolute top orchestras, um, that's not a stepping stone orchestra. You know, that's, that's a, that's a terminal, you know, and, and again, I expected it to be the end of the line for me. Um, I, I, I think I, but you know, that's been a great gift that I have been, that I've received that I can now come to this, position where I am now. And it's like, I've been there. I've done that. Yeah, right. It wasn't going to get like better than that. Um, so I can walk away and say, I'm so grateful for that opportunity and for that experience that nobody can take away from me. But ultimately like that wasn't what I was wired to do. Yeah. So what did you, we talked a little bit about this before the camera turned or the camera, the microphone turned on. What did you face when you, what yeah. kinds of reactions did you face? We'll go from good to bad. <laughs> well, I, the vast majority of the orchestra and the vast majority of the reactions that I got were, yeah, I get it. You know, living in a foreign country. Uh, I mean, the, uh, there were a lot of the orchestra members that came up to me and said, you know, we're going to miss you, but I get it. Um, because, you know, they would describe like when we would go on tour in Japan for like two weeks, they were like, I would get so homesick for Austria that I couldn't stand it. I don't know how you've been living outside your country for five years. Uh, most humans like understand that in principle, like living abroad is not for everybody. Um, there are some people that are wired that way and I'm just not one of them. Um, and living as a foreigner is, is tough. And so most, and most people just understood like coming back to my home state. It's like, man, if I had the chance to go back and, and live in my home state and, you know, I would do that. The vast majority of people really understood. There were some people kind of in the middle that like they understood mentally, but they could just not wrap their whole mind around it. You know, like, how could you turn your back on something that amazing? And that, 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 that was a lot of people that were projecting their own motivations and what they would want if they were in my shoes. Yeah. I mean, I could me. imagine, I could totally imagine feeling a similar way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're happy for that person, but then like you go home and you talk to your wife and he's like, that guy is crazy. Yeah. You know, like I got a lot of that. You're not gonna, yeah. You're not gonna be angry. I mean, you, I know you said you faced even some anger. Yeah. Um, from people. Uh, there were, I mean, there were a couple of people in the orchestra that, um, kind of thought that, or, or they seemed to heavily imply that I knew when I took the job that I was going to leave someday, mm. but I, I truly didn't. Um, I, I, I've talked to my wife about this. I'm like, am I kidding myself when I'm saying this? Like, but it's like, we, we really said we were going to be there for a long time. It's like, yeah, I mean, we, we thought, I mean, we sold all of our stuff and started yeah, over yeah. in Austria. We really thought we were going to um, be there for a long time. Um, there were some people that um, like, I don't know. I, it's a little hard to describe, but you got this kind of angry vibe. There were, there were a lot of people like college students, for example, that I would talk to and they were just like, I just don't see how you could do that. I just yeah. don't, I just do not get it. Cause they're right in the thick of like that part of their career where all they want is an orchestra job. And I, I had one and then I just walked away. Um, you know, I, 
but you know, that was the, by far the minority. There were quite a few people who, because they couldn't wrap their mind around it, they, they thought there has to be some other explanation. You know, mm, um, there interesting. were, you know, when I got back to the States, I had, you know, I would, I would go and have coffee with a colleague somewhere and they're like, okay, you can tell me now what really happened. <laughs> like, why did you really leave? And it's like, cause I didn't, I did a whole blog post about it and like why I'd made the decision. And it's like, it's like, they couldn't really believe that that was the real reason. Um, there were, there were even people that had like conspiracy theories made up because like I left at the same time Ian Bousfield left and it's like, Oh, well clearly the, the Vienna Philharmonic is like Anglophobic and they treat non Austrians really poorly, man, which is, that's amazing. People want to know yep. so badly. They care about your business so badly. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I mean, it's like, uh, there were, I mean, there were blog posts done uh, that have since been taken down, but there were blog posts about that. Like, uh, um, you know, well, clearly these guys were mistreated. Why else would they leave at right. the same time? Like, um, and making up these, and, and there were people that, you know, like sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like you can tell me, I won't tell anybody, really tell me what happened. And it's like, seriously, like if I hadn't chosen to leave, I would still be there right now. Yeah. Like. They treated me beautifully. I had a great time. It really, it's just, it's just so hard for some people to believe that I would willingly walk away. But then if they actually get to know me, then they get it, Yeah, you know, or um, I've had, I've had people, you know, come visit our campus or, or something like that, you know, um, and, and they go like, okay, I get it. I see, I, I get kind of. I still think you may were an idiot, but I kind of get why you did what you did, you know? Well, and it's certainly very anti. That's a child, right? That's a child. I yes. couldn't remember. I couldn't decide yeah. if I was actually hearing that. So the that Suzuki classroom is just across from uh, my studio. So that's a, that's a, yeah. Okay. Well, if anybody <laughs> hears any screaming children in the background, this is the joys of mobile recording. Yeah, you exactly. Know? So sorry for people who listen to Joe Rogan's <laughs> interviews and think that, that ours is going to be, we're working on it, but it just adds character to yeah, it. You absolutely. Know? So yeah, it's just very anti kind of cultural, I suppose, you know, we, it, to sort of be that true to yourself that of course, like you said, you're not, I want to get out of here, but even if you did, even if you were yeah. like, I realized I'm really unhappy to just prioritize something for yeah. you over what everybody else would expect you to do. I feel yeah. like there's just a lot of people. My, like I said, I was that way for a long time. I just kind of lived in this space of, I think everybody w like would expect me to do this kind of thing. And yeah. then, and as I was telling you before, I'm in this space now where I'm not even sure. I, I feel I'm in this place of being a little reinvented. You know, yeah, like that's yeah. kind of exactly how I feel. Yeah. And I'm okay. I'm okay with that, you know, and I, I don't know if other people are not okay or totally okay, but I suppose in, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. It's like, you got to do what's right for you and, exactly. and the people that love you will support you and they'll be there for you. Yeah. Right. And the people that can't handle it, you know, like exactly. that's, that's their thing. And I just think being able to be that true to yourself, that much confidence in yourself is like worth its weight in gold, basically, uh, well, in uh, the long run. Uh, what you were saying earlier about like 
happiness is great, but it's not the end all be all, you know, because I was actually happy. Like in many ways, I was happy in my job and I loved my job uh, and I was good at it. And, you know, it, it seemed to only be going upwards, you know, and uh, um, there was at least some possibility as Ian left the orchestra that I could have made a run for the principal position in that orchestra, you know, and it's like there was not a career reason necessarily other than just like it, it, it wasn't what fulfilled me, you know, um, the words like contentment and peace and fulfilled. I, I, I had that and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't content and I wasn't fulfilled by it. And, um, now what I'm doing now, it's like, I'm infinitely happier, but also I'm infinitely more fulfilled and at peace with what I'm doing now. Yeah. I think that's you. We were talking about this before too, that, um, you have, I mean, again, you earned it because you won the job in Vienna and whatnot, but it's like, you've kind of earned what you have now through providing, you know, you've provided information to people, you've connected with people and you've done it in a way that's meaningful to you. And I think that's just a dream, you know, to be able to have a platform where you get to be yourself in the way yeah. you like to, and yeah. you found an audience that cares. Yeah. And I, I, I know a lot of that. I would imagine you would, you know, thank Karen for, Absolutely. right. Um, but just having people that are, so I would like your opinion on this. It leads me to this idea of having people in your corner yeah, and how you prioritize um, spending who you spend your time with. Obviously, your family is at the top of the list, but then if you only have a limited amount of time, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's like yes. there's people that are there for you, and they're in your corner and stuff like that, and they're going to support you. And I feel I've really learned that these are the people that uh, I should aim to spend my time with and, and grow and have, and grow my relationships with. And I don't know if you want to expand upon that at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that was, that's been a journey for me. Um, it's interesting because you were talking about, this is a dream and it's like, I had never really put that label on it, but like, yeah, this is actually a dream job. Um, and I think I have the, the unique sort of like among our industry that like, I kind of have had the dream job that people thought should be my dream job. And then the actual job that was my dream job, you know? Um, and I'm grateful for both and I got things out of both, but now I feel I'm actually living the the life and, and having the, the career that I always wanted all along. And of course I just took a really kind of roundabout way to get here. But um, when I first got back to the States and took this job, um, I, I really had to do what you're talking about and and figure out like, okay, so I had this amazing platform in Vienna and I had this this sort of ready-made position where it's like I, I had obviously to work to to win that audition, but like what if I hadn't, right? Um by winning that audition, it's like I immediately got the sort of clout of the Vienna Philharmonic kind of as a ready-made package and you're just kind of already kind of a big deal. It's like, that's very cool. But it, in terms of like building a platform or building a, um, building something that I wanted to build, like I didn't really have to build anything. I just won the job and then that just became my resume, you know? And I definitely had that feeling when I got back to the States and I, and I took this job, uh, at Vanderbilt, it's like, that is my resume. It's like, 
this guy was in the Vienna Philharmonic. And I told Karen when we started working together um, a couple of years ago, I was like, I, I look forward to the day when obviously the Vienna Philharmonic is always going to be in my resume, but I, I look forward to the day when it isn't the totality of my resume, yeah, yeah. you know, when I can diversify and build some other things and go build something of my own. And, um, and, um, and my wife said that too, like, uh, when we first got here, of course, she's going to be the very first person that I say has always been in my corner. Cause you know, she moved to Vienna without saying a crossword, like she was totally on board. Uh, and then when it was time to move back, you know, she was obviously all on board with that mm -hmm. too. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, she has been with me the entire way. And when I first got back and, and the studio wasn't in great shape um, and I had to build and recruit and attract people to this university, it's a great university and a great school of music, but the trombone studio specifically wasn't in great shape. And um, so it's like, she goes, you know, take your time build your platform that you want to build, be the musician you want to be, you know? Um, Cause if I can just be really honest for a little while, it was like, you know, I, there was a part of me that had been spoiled by sort of like the sort of silver bullet of the Vienna Philharmonic. Like I got that job and all of a sudden I had clout and a platform. Well, then I obviously walked away from that and now I got a little impatient. It's like, well, I don't want to build a studio. Mm -hmm. I don't want to build a following. I just want to have a ready-made one if I'm being really honest about it at the beginning, I, I didn't want that. And there were times where I'm like, you know, lamenting the fact that this trombone studio wasn't sort of a, this, this hasn't been the traditional like go-to, this hasn't been, you know, like some of our peers that we all look up to like Northwestern or Eastman or Indiana, Michigan, North Texas, these, these schools that like just draw students to them like moths to a flame for very good reason. But I kind of started to go like, I started to get a little whiny about like, well, you know, I wish, I wish I could had the cloud of a Michigan or a Northwestern or huh. something like that, you know, or a Juilliard. And my wife just kind of went, well, why don't you just build it into that? It's like, well, because that'll take time. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I found myself getting just as impatient as all my students are about practicing the hard lick and the castoret. Yeah, yeah. And, Interesting. And and um, and so she was in my corner and also just keeping keeping me accountable to what I said I wanted to do. I, I said I, I said I wanted to build something, and then you know, when I got impatient, she's like, you know what? You have to stick with it. You, you wanted this. So now take your time and build it. Um, and I went around to, um, I, I actually went and visited some of these studios that I just mentioned uh, and talked to the trombone professors there and like, tell me how to build a studio. And, uh, I tried to just pick their brains and, and get some advice. And all of them said, it'll be minimum five years. And I'm like, no. <laughs> well, and some people were saying like eight to 10 years. And I'm like, no, you know, I want it now. And it's like, I got really impatient. Um, and, you know, if I dig down really deep to probably what is my like central character flaw, it's that it's impatience. I get mm. really impatient and I want what I want. I want it now. But, but uh, those, so those, those um, colleagues spoke into me as well. And, and then my wife is over here going, take your time, build it right. And there were, and then of course my mentors like Vern Kagerice and Jan Kagerice and Don Huff, my teachers were, were helping me along the way, uh, totally in my corner. 
investing in me, investing in my students. You know, Vern, before he died, like we would have these these um, long phone calls where he would like know my students by name and like tell me how so-and-so is doing and tell me how so-and-so is doing and what are you doing to help them? And just like totally helping me get my feet under myself as a teacher. Um, and then my colleagues here at the Blair School, but then of course a huge one is Karen Kubitas where like um, she moved to town and uh, I had a couple of conversations with her and she had looked at some of my social media. I was just kind of dipping my toe in, uh, in the water on Facebook and things like that. And uh, she was like, you have, you have a platform here that if you will build it will be really amazing. And you have this, these experiences that are so unique. You've been in one of the great orchestras, but now you're building this new thing and just having her in my corner has been completely, Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing uh, at the level I'm doing it without her to, to bounce things off of and, and for her to help me build some of these um, projects that I've been doing. Um, and uh, or my, my trumpet colleague, Jose Cibaja, who came to the faculty three years ago, and he was like, why don't you have a CD yet? And I'm like, well, you know, and I got, I went down that path of like, I don't really want to do one until it's going to be just like perfect. Sure. I sure. don't want to do just another trombone CD. I want it to be, and I just had this like, he's like, J no, Jeremy, just do it. Just shut up and do it. Just go find some music and, and record it. You just have to do it. Cause it, it won't be perfect. It'll never be perfect. You'll always kind of hate your first <laughs> album <laughs> and want to do better, but it's like, you have to just go do it. And, and having, having those people that are speaking into me and saying like, no, you do have something to offer, but also you just have to go and, and just rip off the bandaid and do it has been really, really big for me. So then what do you view your responsibility is to pa to pay it forward? I assume you're the kind of guy that views, views it as I got to pay it forward. Absolutely. And so obviously the, the, the most obvious way is through teaching and encouraging these kids, but are there other ways that you are trying to find avenues with which to encourage other people and to sort of pay it forward in those ways and be those kinds of mentors for other people? Yeah, sure. I mean, all these videos and stuff that I'm doing are, are a big part of that. Um, with, uh, with my standard rep project and all of that. I mean, some, so that's kind of a, it's kind of a twofer because it scratches an itch that I have to push myself musically and put myself out there and share my ideas and share something musically. But everywhere I go, people are talking to me about those videos and, and, and especially for young players, it's like, I love being able to pull up on YouTube and have these, you know, a decent performance with a good pianist and like good video quality and good audio quality of a standard rep video. And then you have the tips videos and the body, mind, spirit stuff, and just trying to get some of those ideas out there as I, as I sort of, uh, as I come across them and I think they're good, I'm going to put them out there and use the platform that I have here and the team that I have here to get the ideas out there in a way that's actually accessible. And I, that's why I love the internet and why I love YouTube and, and podcasts and things like that, because the moment you click publish on this thing, like anybody in the world has access to yeah. it. Yeah. What do you, what's, what is next for you? Do you have any? I mean, you don't have to say if there's like some secret project. No, yeah, looming, yeah, but super, super just secret curious, project. I mean, you know, I could tell you right now what is next for me. You know yeah. what I mean? I have. Yeah. I'm sure you're the same way. You have projects looming and stuff. So, I mean, what is what is the next? 
three years look like for Jeremy Wilson? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the big ones is continuing the standard rep project because we, we released five videos or five pieces the first year, I think. And then uh, basically I took a year off because I had a lot of administrative stuff here at Vanderbilt last year and I had a heavy teaching load. So we basically took a year off. We're about to release the second year of stuff. And then we have like a three to four year plan where we really are going to release like like 20 of the, of the standard. How long, uh, do, they, how long do they take you to, to, how long does about does one take you to do? Well, we record all of them, uh, over a three day period. And basically with the standard rep videos, uh, because of budget constraints and things like that and time constraints, I don't do those with maybe the level of detail that I would a CD or like that I did my album where it's like many hours of recording and like editing and all this kind of stuff. Um, basically we go into the concert hall. I run through each piece like three times and we kind of pick the best take. Okay. Um, and uh, so putting those together, it, it doesn't take super long, but there's just a lot of coordination, a lot of moving parts, getting the pianist, getting the hall, getting the videographer, getting the recording engineer uh, to do that. Um, so we're going to be probably releasing a video per month uh, starting in October. Um, and uh, we're going to just keep going with that each year uh, until we until we feel like we can say, like, here's the standard rep for trombone and we've recorded it all. Um, I've got a probably in 2020 I'm going to have a second solo album uh, recorded. I, a lot of people uh, might know, or some people might know that for my first album, it was all pieces that I had commissioned. Well, I actually over commissioned. I commissioned way more works than would actually fit on a CD. And, uh, and then I was also fortunate enough to participate in a couple consortium commissions. So if you combine the works that didn't fit on CD number one with some consortium things, I actually have enough music that I can do a second album yeah. of music that was written for me. Uh, and so that'll happen at some point in 2020. Um, the, uh, the Aries quartet, it's a trombone quartet that I'm a part of. We recorded one half of our album, uh, over the summer. We're probably going to finish that next summer. Is that the one with Joe and Jim? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, and we're going to be trying to finish that album up. Uh, and then we have this trio, um, that I have with, uh, trumpet player, Jose Cibaja and, a and pianist, David Rogers. We just recorded that album, nice. uh, two weeks ago and we're furiously editing. So we're, it's, it's an interesting kind of crossover album, uh, where we're doing like, uh, one of David's pieces and some like really jazz inflected stuff. We're doing a, a piece we did, we recorded a piece that Ryan Mitta composed for trumpet, trombone and rhythm section. And then we did some standards, like we did the Castored uh, trumpet and trombone piece. Uh, and there's a Jean-Michel Damas piece for trumpet, trombone, and piano. So it's like some like standard classical stuff, but then also some new jazz inflected stuff. And I think that's probably going to grow into maybe another album or something. Uh, but right now, just finishing that, uh, uh, maybe looking for a Christmas, maybe January release of that. Um, don't, don't hold me to that. Yeah. But uh, right now, the, the process is going really fast. So, um, and of course the body, mind, spirit video series, we're, we're about to go and record a whole new set of those talking about 
you know, obviously the existing set it talks about body, mind, spirit in terms of like preparing a piece of music. We're going to also talk about how body, mind, spirit uh, influences auditions and high pressure situations. Yeah, cool. How bringing body, mind, spirit into your practice session and bringing body, mind, spirit into your warm up. Um, I did a at the Alessi seminar. I did a an hour long talk about the body, mind, spirit warm up, where it's like. The warm up, you would think, really, that's just a body thing, right? We're just preparing our body to make music. But I, I contend that actually, during your warm up, you can actually start to engage your spirit and your and focus your mind and get all three parts of you ready for music making in a in a given. Yeah, day. I mean, ideally speaking, if this is something that's important and it's beneficial to you, you should be doing it on everything, right? I, I really subscribe to the idea that if everything is special, nothing is special. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. if you treat everything with the same amount of intensity and focus and care, right. then if you do that with a C major scale, exactly. then pictures at an exhibition is a little exactly. bit easier because it's not this really scary thing that all of a sudden you have to play perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. And I also think we now know neurologically that, that uh, you know, of course, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So if we, when we do bodily movements at the same time, that's how we develop what we used to be called muscle memory. Of course, we know there's no memory within muscles, but it's those neural pathways that we create. But we now know that you can store within those neural pathways all sorts of other sensory information. This is how PTSD works, right? So like sights, smells, surroundings, even people, even times of the year can start to get um, wired together with certain like behaviors. And it's like, I just, I just have to believe that if every time you put the horn up to your face, no matter if it's a C scale in your warm up or you're playing the Petruska excerpt for the Chicago Symphony audition, if in both of those instances, you're going through the same process and you're thinking the same positive thoughts and you're thinking the same uh, and you have the same reason for doing those, um, it's going to have an effect on how you play um, yeah. in terms of anxiety, in terms of holding up under pressure, in terms of consistency, in terms of enjoyment and fulfillment of your craft. Do you take or recommend the usage of beta blockers? I don't, but I am open to it. Yeah, uh, I don't take them, but I have, but I, I do think that for some people, it yeah, is a need. It's an interesting thing for me because I don't get nervous for anything mm -hmm. except auditions because I'm there because I care and I want to win. Right. right? That's very hard. I, I've done so much work and I understand the idea of separating myself from the result. Mm -hmm. And it's still, I get to a point where I feel like I'm fighting physical symptoms exactly. of that. And it's very interesting because I, I, I treat everything exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I even played, I released a podcast episode about this. I don't know if you if you saw yeah, that one, yeah. um, but I played the round at the end of that. I was very proud of the way that I played. I felt like I played really well, but I was in the moment was like battling, you yeah. know? And I just think that's such an interesting part of the conversation as yeah. well that um, th there are some things... I just don't think that are replicable. Right. I think there's a lot of performance. The more that if I could take an audition every week or every month, it would be different. But I think there's just some things that, like the 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 circumstances. No matter mm -hmm. how much you want to tell yourself a mock round is real, <laughs> it's not going to feel real until right. you're on the hall right. and CSO stage, and you're like, okay, this is it. This is the moment. So I feel like I that's so. one thing that. Maybe body, mind, soul, or spirit would be able to, uh, to to help me with, but I just feel like also sometimes, yeah, these things just like are difficult. I, I, I agree. I think sometimes it's just hard to, and it, but also at the same time, like this has never really been tested in a pure form over the long term, right? Like 
I don't know anybody that's actually like every time the horn comes up to my face, I'm thinking positive thoughts and, you know, whatever for six months or a year or 10 years. I don't know that it's ever happened. Um, so maybe if it's ever happened, but like none of these things happen in a vacuum. Right. So I think for, for some people, when, when the physical symptoms of the limbic system and just takes over your body and the fight or flight response kicks in and you have yeah. shaking or you have s- symptoms that, that are not your fault. I think, um, you know, people that take beta blockers thinking that they're going to not make them nervous. It's like, or it's going to get rid of nerves. It doesn't get rid of nerves. It just gets rid of the unintentional physical symptoms that, that come from. Yeah. Nerves, I think what right? I, what I didn't lose was focus. Yeah. Right. I right. feel like that's a huge part of it yeah. is I didn't all of a sudden make counting mistakes right. or right. I didn't like breathe for an awkward amount of time. I just right. felt the physical symptoms, but in terms of uh, my ability to execute all mm-hmm. of those skills remained, yeah. I feel like that's there, a big part. What people, yeah. people miss is like, maybe you're going to still be nervous, but what's that saying? I've just heard it so many times recently The uh, uh, of you don't, f- you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall at a level of your systems or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. or whatever your preparation, your training, whatever right. it is. Right. And the idea that, uh, there's another great way to say it, which is when under stress, we regress. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that idea that if you're, if you're, if you're having trouble in an audition, be, and you're, it's counting errors or mm-hmm. you're having where you're missing notes or right. like all, your trumpet playing is just massively different. It might not be because of nerves. Right. Exactly. The, uh, having a, having a beta blocker that takes away the, the physical symptoms of, of, of uncontrollable shaking or things like that is not going to all of a sudden make you better than you would be on your best day. Yeah. Right. It's just allowing you to have a chance at being that, that player. Right. Uh, and I just, I just know too many musicians that I just respect so much that have used those from time to time to, to, I mean, it's just, it's just something that, that I think is, is totally appropriate for some people. Well, and especially in an audition situation, I was interviewing Aubrey Ford Mm -hmm. and he says he takes one and it, whether it's about nerves or not, he just doesn't want anything to get in the way of this, like two months or whatever of preparation to have it boiled down to like, all of a sudden I have a shortness of breath, you know, it's just, so I was just curious what your take on that was because I totally see how this would help with and alleviate some issues with un- like your mind not being able to focus mm-hmm. this body, mind, spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder what your take was on if you feel like it even alleviated some of the the more extremes. Yeah. Well, it has for me because I mean, I, I've, I've not gotten to the point where I would take beta blockers, but I have. Um, I have definitely dealt with nerves and anxiety or especially dry mouth. Like I get on stage and it feels like I'm playing with somebody else's lips on my face. Uh, and this has really helped me in that, uh, partially because I can again, replicate the same process that I've gone through in in my practice room. And so as far as my brain is concerned, I'm just in my practice room. Um, but also like keeping my focus on the why, take some of the pressure off me because it's not about me. It's about the music. Sure, and it's about sure. communicating something, you know, but also I, also I haven't, I haven't taken a major audition since I worked yeah, on this. Right, right. So I don't know it's applicability. I have a theory. I'm curious what you think about this. I have a theory about nerves. I, I, it's a, I would call it like a triangle, but it's a circle, right? It's a three points within mm-hmm. a circle because mm-hmm. they're all connected. Yes. And then there was a fourth point. Nah, I forgot it. 
Maybe I'll think <laughs> of it. The first one of why people get nervous, preparation. They're just yeah. not prepared, right? Yeah. I always say this is like 85% of why people get nervous. Yeah. They just need a system of preparation that A, prepares them, but B, allows them to feel that they right. are prepared. I right. think if you are prepared, but you think you could have done more, you're exactly. Yeah. The second one then is if you're totally prepared, you might care what the people who are listening to you think. Right. Yeah. And so you're thinking, Oh, like I'm playing really well, but I wonder, and anything that takes you out of what you're talking about, this like present minded, mm-hmm. what am I trying to accomplish yep. is not good. And then if you don't care what they think or uh, the other one, uh, then, then it's, you don't treat everything with equal, importance. Exactly. And so the excerpts are hard because you have practiced in such a way that you have told yourself mentally, the excerpts are difficult. Exactly. And so, um, it sounds simple, but I feel like it kind of addresses many of the reasons why. And again, preparation, preparation will lead to confidence, right? Right. So if you're prepared, you can think I have confidence. I know what I'm doing. I don't got to worry about what other people think. And the reason I am prepared is because I've treated everything equal. You know what I mean? They all kind of, they all kind of feed into each other a little bit. Exactly. And it it can, it can help you uh, fall back. Even, even if, even if you are really nervous or even if it is a high pressure situation, you can fall back on those things that you know to be true. Um, I've never, um, I've never felt really nervous about a performance for which I was just uber prepared, mm-hmm. right? Um, except for maybe the Vienna Philharmonic audition, I was really nervous about that, mainly because I didn't know what to expect. It was the fear of the unknown. I'd never taken an orchestral audition before. So I didn't really know what to expect when I went in the doors. But once I actually got into the room and was playing, it was like I was just back in my practice right, room in North exactly, Texas. yeah. Okay, this is cool because I I think it's so important for people to consider that there is a way to con- you are actually in control of that. Yes, like mm-hmm. there are some things we're not in control of, and maybe mm-hmm. like it's a give it's a day where our chops feel horrible, or maybe we didn't get a lot of sleep, and so we're you know we like you said maybe we're dehydrated, mm-hmm. but. There are a, there are an amount of things we are in control of every single time we play the instrument, and I believe what you're thinking is one of those things. Absolutely. And so I'm a big believer in normalizing your setup, breathing for about the same amount of time, mm-hmm. thinking about the same kind of thing, you know, releasing, you know, just trying yep. to get it all to be about the same. You see this in in powerlifting and stuff where exactly. squatters and deadlifters they set up exactly the same way every yes. single time to minimize inconsistency. Because the body between, remembers, right? Exactly. The body remembers all that stuff. And if you release the air the same way, then you can start to say, oh, I, sh- I overshot mm-hmm. or I undershot or, mm-hmm. you know, and I imagine it's the same for other instruments too. Obviously I have the most amount of experience playing a brass <laughs> instrument, but yeah. our, our instrument being so conceptual is a, especially an important part yes. that like we have to be able to hear everything. And so that we are intent with intent, putting forth air into the instrument. Exactly. I, I don't know if I told the, I can't even remember if I told the story on Karen's podcast, but I could briefly tell it again. This is a great example of this, but within the Vienna Philharmonic audition in the second round, I thought that I lost the audition because I missed the high D and also Sprague Zarathustra. Um, I, I, I went up for the top D and it just, I cracked it really badly. Uh, And they asked me to play it again and I played it a second time and I got it the second time. But in my mind, I had already lost the audition and uh, they asked me to keep going, but I thought maybe they were just being nice to me or something. Um, And the next next, uh, excerpt was the Mahler third uh, solo. And in my mind, what I did then was, well, I've already lost the audition 
So I don't really care what they think about me because I know they probably already think I'm horrible and they're going to release me. Um, and I, I decided to just kind of like have fun, use the excerpt to like celebrate this, you know, several months of experiences that I had had and all the learning and all the things that I had been through. And, uh, and then of course I was extremely prepared, uh, because I had never been more prepared for anything in my life. Uh, probably still haven't. And, um, I just decided to like play and it, I mean, that was the excerpt that won the audition. Yeah, right. When I decided to like get rid of all the extraneous, like wonder what they're thinking, wonder what score they're giving me, wonder if they liked my sound on that. It's like that actually was when I, the actual, what I had to offer came out. It's very interesting though, because it's difficult to do that right out of the gate. It's like we uh, almost yeah. we almost need right. something where we, we were just like, right. well, there's no way. I played, I, I told this story on a podcast episode that, this is being recorded on September 12th, 2019. It's going to come out a lot later than that. So when I say I'm record, I recorded on a podcast episode that comes out next month, that means October 2019. So people have heard the story. But um, I played with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra my second year. Our, con our season opener was the suite from Rosen Cavalier. And uh, it's got... Rosen Cavalier is such an interesting piece to me because it starts out and you're just like, all right cool it's all excited and then kind of before you know it it's the most beautiful music that's ever yep. and you don't really like notice when that happens <laughs> all of a sudden you're like wait how did we get here and so i to me what kicks off that are those soft trumpet solos like yeah. all of a sudden the mood changes and i played i think it was the second one and i i messed it up i just i messed it up right it wasn't i, I didn't blow it but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't exactly yeah. what I wanted. I, I remember being so upset. Not that I missed it, but I just, that moment was important to me, you yeah. know, and I wanted to, I wanted it to play out because I know what a beautiful moment is. So I thought, I know what, I'm going to make up for that moment with what I play for the rest of this concert. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, the rest of that piece is basically like the, the trio, you know, right. which is some of the most beautiful music ever written. Yeah. And I, I remember going for it. The, there's this line, just this dee. <laughs> the singing, beautiful line. I went for it 100%. And when the concert was over, I remember just like, I just sat. <laughs> I was just exhausted, yeah. you know? And I thought, oh my gosh. Two things I thought, and this is what I outlined on the thing. This isn't the focus part of that episode I was talking about. I outlined two things. The first thing I outlined was, uh, that's the kind of focus I gave to that moment was like, I was in, like you said, like I knew what I was going to do yeah. and I was like in that present moment. And then number two, I was like, why don't I do that all the time? You know, like, why yeah. don't we play if we know we're capable of playing our instruments? So I feel like even at a professional level, sometimes we forget that, that like we can do that. Yes. You know, maybe there's, maybe you feel like, you know, the moment's not right or whatever it would be. But, uh, I kind of like forgot I should just play like that all the time, you know, because that's what the music <laughs> yeah. deserves, you know? And so it's interesting to me, you had a similar experience where Absolutely. you feel like you had to basically go for broke because you're like, well, whatever, it doesn't matter anyway. But yeah, like at this point, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to make music now. And then, yeah, it's like, well, why wasn't I just doing that from the beginning? Yeah. But sometimes, sometimes it's like, you've, it's, it's very easy to forget, which is again, kind of why I've tried to go back to this body, mind, spirit thing. Mm. And I can say like, for the last two years since I've been kind of doing this this way, I, I haven't had a single performance where I I kind of came away from it going like, I mean, I, 
I've had some performances that weren't perfect, but like every performance I've tried, I've felt like I'm going for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't always go exactly how I want it to. And some of that is relative to other circumstances or the amount of work that I put into it. Because the reality of being a college remote professor is you don't get the time to practice that you would like all the time. But, um, I, but at, at the very least, I've been connected to what I wanted to do and I've tried to do that. And a lot of them have worked out really well. It's why I feel like I, I, I'm making better music now than I've ever made. Yeah. As a college trombone professor who doesn't have a lot of time to practice, do you feel like you've developed systems of better efficiency and stuff like that? And if there are things that you could share, I'd be very curious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know. This maybe this maybe would be another podcast, but um, when I was when I was working up to during the summer uh, that I was going to record my my solo CD uh, perspective, so we recorded it last August, August of 2018, mm -hmm. and I I took the whole summer basically I, I I did like one seminar where I was on faculty in June, and then I didn't have anything else till August. It's like I'm going to set aside like five or six weeks. Uh, to like get rid of my teacher chops and like get in shape to actually record this CD. And there was just, there was one week where the the circumstances meant that I actually didn't practice at all every other day. So like, like I practiced on a Monday and then like I was out of town or something on Tuesday and then the same thing again on Thursday. So I practiced like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. And so there was a whole week where I only practiced every other day and I felt amazing. <laughs> I felt so good. I felt like I could play anything. And um, I actually just continued that throughout the entire summer. I played every other day. Um, but I made sure that when I was when I was practicing that I was, you know, really focusing and it was a really intense practice and I was going after everything and I was I was holding myself to a really high standard. And then I took the next day off to rest and recuperate. How long how many how long would you practice on the days Usually you Usually an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah, that's very interesting to me. I, I'm a believer now that the idea that you have to do everything every day is not true. Yeah. I think there are some things that are good to do every day. Sure. Like right. I think like flexibility. Right. You know, I, I, I also don't think everybody, I don't think people need to practice every single day, right? I think like six days a week maximum yeah. is enough. Yeah. But so maybe flexibility six times a week, maybe you're gonna like touch articulation. Mm -hmm. But if you're gonna practice that much, you don't really need to touch it for more than like, 10 minutes, right? Right. Like just a little bit, make sure you've covered your bases, even like five minutes at that point. And I'm just, I, it's such an interesting thing that, that you had a similar experience. And yeah. do you think it's because our chops are developed? To I that think point? so. I, I like, like I wouldn't recommend that for a college junior, you know, necessarily. Uh, but it, it, it made me start to think about some things. Like I think I have learned to be more efficient. Uh, and then also it, um, I think there is a lot, uh, and, and the research is bearing this out too, that mental practice is, so that doesn't mean that I wasn't thinking about my music on the day that I was not having the horn on my face. But also I think context is really important because I was trying to build up to record an album and have like really long recording session days and all my pieces were pretty strenuous. So I was really worried about endurance. And so I went towards like a, basically this is like my endurance thing where it's like, I'm gonna hit it hard and then rest and then hit it hard and then rest. And so like when we got to the album recording, I was able, like uh, the, the loop station piece that Jim Stevenson wrote for me called Loop-de-Loop. -loop. Um, it's very, 
tough, lots of high stuff, lots of really strenuous stuff. And that it took me 10 hours to record that because of just the recording process for the loop station thing. And like, I was still able to pop out all the high stuff and whatever after a 10 hour recording session. Uh, and I think it was because I had spent that time. So I'm not saying like only practice every other day, but there's, but it really showed me like, I don't have to at this point in my career yeah. practice three hours every day to maintain or even get better. Uh, now, if I'm preparing for a concerto, I've got some concertos coming up in Korea in November, the two or three weeks before that, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to be doing like every other day, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be paying attention to my body and letting it recoup and, and, yeah. and recover when it needs to. Yeah. We'll talk about this. At, we'll talk about this afterwards. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but yeah. uh, it's not for this particular podcast yeah. episode. <laughs> like I said, this could be another podcast. Well, yeah, but. no, I mean, it's just, it, it's such an expansive topic to me and one that I'm not sure. I think brass players are uniquely aware of this mm -hmm. because we have uh face considerations that right. other instruments do not have. Yeah. So when I've talked to uh, other instruments about like efficient practice uh, and stuff, especially, you know, these string players that I've mm -hmm. talked to for them, the adage is just, just do more. <laughs> right. Right. Like just spend more just time, play another hour. If you need more time, not right. like let's play the same amount, but let's just ask ourselves if we're being super efficient. But I think efficiency, it's not just about not spending the time Efficiency is also then asking yourself, what am I doing with that time? And, yes. and like better use of that time is going to make quicker gains in, mm -hmm. in the long run, right? right? So if you're playing better repetitions, fewer better repetitions, it will take you less time to do it, but then also you'll be playing your instrument the way you want to be playing it more often. Exactly, exactly. And know. also planning and prioritizing has been really a big part of that too, where it's like, I need to plan out all my practice sessions and what I'm gonna actually want to get done in each different practice session um, because otherwise I'm just chasing my tail. Yeah. Um, do and you do that daily or weekly? I, I try to do that both. I try to sit down at the beginning of the week and figure out what I need to get done this week, what's my highest priority this week. And then also for each day, I look at the actual practice session that I have and like, okay, so today, what do I need to make sure is done today? Because my schedule just like is so weird and random and each day is so different that I, I'm not able to necessarily get into a rhythm or a routine. Where do you it's schedule like, your practice in? Like I have a, to. Yeah, yeah. I have to schedule my practice in and I have to protect it just like it was an appointment with a student or the dean. I mean, it's like it, it's keeping an appointment with myself. Do you have contingencies for if something comes Comes up or is it like no? I mean, obviously we're we're not talking about extreme, sure, like a right. family member's hurt or something, <laughs> right. right? We're just saying like for me, if I were if that were my case, it would be like that is what's happening during that hour. Like nothing can yeah. interrupt me. It just kind of depends on how it depends on what's happening. Like if I've got a concert coming up in a few days, then I'm going to protect that a little more fiercely. Um, uh, but in general, I try to just stick to it you know, and, and carve it out of my day and treat it like an appointment and only change it if there's really something important that comes up. And usually the contingency would be like, you know, I was planning to have a lighter day tomorrow, but I'll, okay, yeah. so I'll do it then. But uh, most of the time I just try to fight for the time that I have carved out um, when I can, just because otherwise there's just too much going on with my responsibilities at school and my family. And now we've got three kids in a stage where it's like soccer and piano lessons <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing. So there's just so much 
going on. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I, um, I want to be able to also be available for my students, you know, if they come in and they want to talk and it's like, I need, I, I, I can rest easy if I know that I've got my practice time scheduled. Uh, do you try to do it early then? For me at this stage, like it's like late morning. Okay. When I was in college, I was a late at night practice guy. I was typically like 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I was an idiot college student. Uh, now I have little kids who yeah. wake me up at six in the morning um, and I'm a very heavy sleeper. So I can't typically practice like first thing in the morning. I also have a lot of lip swelling. Okay. Um, so I need to wait for that to go down. But like like a, like a 10 to noon, is a great practice session for me. Do you wish when you were, I do, I assume if if you're like me, you didn't develop these habits until you needed them. Correct. So do you wish that these were habits that you had just put in when you were younger or does it matter? And does it basically, do you think you would have benefited from this these kinds of habits when you were younger or is it just like, it doesn't really matter until you need it? I, I wish that I had developed more efficiency in my practice and more um, prioritizing in my practice definitely a lot earlier because I spent a lot of hours in the practice room where I wasn't actually getting anything done. And I wish uh, in college specifically, um, in undergrad, I, I feel like had I developed these habits earlier, I could have used that time for, I don't know, like having friendships, <laughs> you a know, life basically. A life. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, I was, yeah. you know, um, th- we were basically required to do four hours of practice a day, Monday through Friday. And I did not, it wasn't four hours of quality for sure. I was just, it was just like, get the time in. And then I approached burnout and it was like, you know, uh, it, it wasn't until then that I actually tried to, you know, be more efficient yeah. and prioritize. And had I been able to, you know, actually like get really good quality, couple hours a day, uh, man, I, I could have used that time to do like maybe sleep. Sure. <laughs> like, you well, know? Yeah. I think it's, it's an unfortunate reality too. Uh, we don't have to get too deep into this cause it's, you could, but I don't see why you need to. I just think it's an unfortunate reality of uh, our profession where people, you hear someone say, I practice for six hours a day. And it's like idolization of, or we yeah. look at this person as dedicated. And then, I mean, I, I know this is kind of a stretch, but, and then you start to say, well, this person practices six hours a day. They must really care. If I'm not practicing six hours a day, you know what I mean? You start to like equate this, like yeah, this thing of like, well, they must care more than I do somehow. Or they have people that put that on you. They're like, well, you're not doing as much as I'm doing. And I just think the the process should be, the, the conversation should be, what is the fastest I could possibly get the yeah. most amount of quality right. in? Like, right. what do I need? Like you said, what do I need to get done? I'd make sure I can check the boxes of all of the fundamentals and the work I need to do. And how can I do that efficiently? And if that takes you two hours, great. If that takes you three and a half hours, great. If that takes you 45 minutes, great. Cool. You know, I just think it should be dependent completely on what kind of player you are, where you're at in your journey, like you were saying, and also how much stuff you got to learn. If you have a heavy recital, you're going to be practicing more than if you're just in maintenance mode. Right. And when I, I mean, if I hear somebody, and I've had that conversation with, with a few of my students where it's like, I don't know, they're feeling a little discouraged or they're feeling like maybe they're not doing enough because they have a, their roommate practices five hours a day. And I'm like, well, maybe your roommate needs to examine their 
practice yeah. schedule. Like Maybe something's they need to be wrong. More efficient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something's like, wrong if you're practicing five hours a day and feeling like right. that's what you need. Yeah, you know, if like I said, if you have enough repertoire that somehow, and I feel like again as brass players, I feel like we're I'm a little bit more sensitive to it than maybe for sure. I think woodwinds or strings or even percussion players they can do that, but for for brass players, it's just yeah, like. And I used to play four or five, six hours a day, like you're talking yeah. about. I just didn't get as much done. But if yeah, if you need that much time, like we, you should call me, right? And, and we we'll can talk, talk about efficiency. We can talk about how to fix some of that because yeah. it's not. I don't think it's as necessary as. I think that's a very old, old model. Uh, I think so too. You know, of just like just more work, more time equals better. Right. And and there's no way around work. I mean, it, it takes hard work to do this profession well. But I mean, when we're getting into like prescribing numbers of hours yeah, right. and, you know, and exactly how those hours should be, again, this is a motor skill. It's not knowledge. And so like every athlete doesn't have the same war. I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing for the podcast listeners. I'm gesturing towards our athletic fields. He's pointing over there. I'm pointing over to the athletic fields <laughs> at Vanderbilt. Uh, go doors. Um, but like, you know, an athlete doesn't have the same warm up routine. An athlete doesn't have the same, you know, and also different kinds of athletes do different kinds of things, right? right? So the offensive line on the football team needs different kinds of things than the swimmers or the track runners or the gymnasts or whatever. It's like, so, you know, the lead trumpet players need different things than the bass trombonists. It's like, right. There is no way around the hard work, but exactly what the hard work should be is going to differ from person to person just as much as your your uh, shoe size differs. And like what we discussed about focus too, I think if you are in the practice room for five hours, I, there's just, I think very little chance that you have focused practice for five hours. And if you are like... I, then I want to learn from you. Yeah, <laughs> if you yeah. can focus that. I'm just not that person. Yeah, I want to experiment with, I'm at a place right now where I want to experiment with doing an activity for no more than 30 minutes. Yeah. Right. So if I need to practice for an hour and a half in a day, mm -hmm. I will, I will practice for 30 minutes and then read for 30 minutes and yeah. then like eat food for 30 minutes and then practice for 30 minutes, like do anything for like 30 minutes because yeah. I feel like for myself, uh, the, the way that I practice, I don't think productivity goes down a ton after 30 minutes, but I just know like if you stop at 30 minutes and you haven't done everything, you're going to be like, ah, I can't wait for that next 30 minute practice yeah, session right. and sort of stopping it before it becomes burnout. Mm -hmm. I think is an, I haven't, I've not experimented with this at all. I'm kind of interested in no, it. No, There's actually research behind that. I mean, that talks about like constantly engaging the learning part of your brain. Uh, there's, there's also a lot of research about keeping your practice moving. Like, uh, within that 30 minutes, it might not even be 30 minutes of the same piece within that 30 minutes. Sure, it's sure. like keeping things, and, and that works for some people and it doesn't work for other people, but there's at least some research behind the idea of like, if you keep things moving and changing, it engages the learning part of your brain and keeps you more interested and maybe more focused. Yeah. And know. what I noticed too is 30 minutes is just, it's like the right amount of time mm. when I'm reading, yeah. I'll yeah. read for 30 minutes 
or I'll read for like 28 minutes in 45 seconds. And I'm about done with a chapter or I feel like I'm like, okay, like it's, I gotta be close. And then I look and yeah, I'm and a it's minute away, you know, minutes, yeah. or I'm writing and I write for a little while. And when I feel like it's, I, I want to be done writing, I'm like within three minutes of it, yeah. you know, it's very interesting to me. And I, I've, I've, I've done it where I've practiced for hours at a time. You know what I mean? And I, maybe I feel like I got something done, but, and I recognize not everybody's schedule is going to allow them, sure. you know, that kind right. of flexibility. But I, I think it's something worth experimenting with for a lot of people, especially for, you know, a lot of students, they might have, you know, hour gaps here and there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so if in your schedule, you could practice for 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the middle of the day and 30 minutes at night, you know, you're going to be fresh for all those sessions. Yeah. You know, maybe you practice for that first session and then you're like, okay, here's my goals for the second session, mm -hmm. you know? And then also giving yourself 30 minutes will force you, I think, to think about efficiency a little bit in that, like you set a goal yeah. and then you're like, okay, what's a reasonable goal? Maybe you set too much, but also like, is it too much? Did I get everything out of there? I could have, I feel like it just, it'll make you answer a bunch of questions that are important to answer. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, that's been part of my efficiency in being a college teacher because a lot of my day, a lot of the, I very rarely actually have an hour and a half at one stretch that I can practice. It's almost always like half an hour here and an hour or maybe even 30, 30, 30. Um, a lot of times between lessons. Um, because my students, you know, they have certain parts of the day that are like better for lessons and certain just because of their schedules and ensembles and things. So I end up with a lot of like teach a lesson, practice a half an hour, teach another lesson, practice another half hour. I end up with a lot of that kind of stuff and it does, it does exactly what you're saying. So then I think, and you're welcome to, to, to talk about this, that one of the things, one of the books I was reading Atomic Habits talks about is like setting up your space to be ready to go. Yeah. So that it's not like it's when your 30 minutes starts, you're not, okay, I got to get the trombone out of the case. Oh, I got to decide oh, no. what music I'm going to play. All of a sudden, 10, 10 minutes of your 30 minutes is gone just trying right. to decide what you're going to do. So that's where you're talking about scheduling out, like knowing what you got to get done for that day yeah, and then having it so it's available right away. Oh, you're like, totally. Yeah, the student leaves, you just like sit down, pick up the horn and start playing. I think makes it much easier. The most common reaction I get when people walk into my studio is like, oh, wow, you have a nice studio and it's very uh, organized. And it's like, well, it's not that way just because I'm anal. I mean, I am, but uh, also because like, I need to create an environment that's conducive for learning yeah. for my students and an, an environment that's conducive to learning for me. Yeah, yeah. So that I can walk in this studio, I put down my bag and within 30 seconds, I can be practicing. Yeah, I think managing your environment is uh, often overlooked part of creating better habits and stuff like that is if you're in a place that is not conducive for you to get the work done, you're mm -hmm. having to overcome a hurdle that may not need to exist in the exactly. first place. I mean, this is why, this is why people take pedagogy classes. This is why NASM now requires pedagogy classes, even for performance majors, because I, and I told all my, all these performance majors in this class I'm teaching right now, it's like, you are all going to be teachers, even if the only student you have is yourself. Mm. And the pedagogical concepts that you would use for a con for a class or in a private lesson apply directly to you. So when it's like when we're talking about create an environment conducive to learning, that's one of the first things that a that a teacher has to do. You need to create an environment that's conducive to your own learning. Yeah, yeah. You know, first do no harm. Be kind to your students. You have to do that for yourself too. Like. 
I, I, you know, Ian Boswell says all the time, uh, you know, if, if, if you talk to your, or if your teacher talked to you the way you talk to yourself, would you study with them? Right. You know, that's a great question. Yeah. But it's like, we, we, we do that all the time where we are like really crappy teachers to ourselves and knowing you know? yourself too. Like maybe, like maybe somebody is <laughs> yeah, needs sure. to be like, sure. have their ass kicked a little bit, you maybe. know, maybe like there right. are people that respond to that. So sure. knowing yourself to, to the to the extent with which you know how to motivate yourself, I think is right. really where it, it begins and ends. Like there's exactly. no right answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's very important to yeah, establishing. I, I really like, like the scheduling aspect again, because I've kind of, I need it now. I really like the idea of having a plan for your entire practice yeah. day. And then if you can, you know, on your day off, like I recommend, you know, Sunday or something like that, plan the whole week if you can, you oh, know? Yeah. So oh, here we go. Flexibility this day. I'm going to work on these movements or whatever it is for this day and then do that. Schedule out, schedule out your practice. So there's just no, this is the same thing as meal prep, right? Exactly. You know, like the more work you can do on this given day makes you ad- able to adhere to mm-hmm. a system that you've created uh, better. I think, I think having a plan, but also flexibility is really important because you need to be able to respond to the conditions on the ground as they are. So like I, I have a, a pop-up in my little, you know, reminder app that pops up every Sunday. It's like plan, plan the week. And those are very general goals. Like by the end of the week, I need to have accomplished these kind of things, but I don't try to plan out every single day at that point, because who knows how I'm going to feel? Who knows, who knows how my chops are going to feel? Who knows what's going to come up? Did my three-year-old daughter come down in the middle of the night because she's sick and I didn't get a good rest? And so is my practice, am I going to really need a really intense practice section the next day? So it's like, I try to have open, uh, you know, definitely goals for the week, but then flexibility on the micro uh, level okay. where it's like from day to day, I will then look at the practice session and go based on how I feel today and what actually is going to be accomplished today, what am I going to get done today? Yeah, I, I kind of, I'm trying to develop a system of, you know, what I would consider to be the priority principle, right? Like what is the most important thing for you to do? Yeah. Oftentimes it's repertoire for people. Mm-hmm. So I'm experimenting now with, we warm up, do your things to feel good and then dive right into your repertoire. When you feel the freshest, you're also, also mentally the freshest, right? Yeah. And then uh, things like fundamentals or etudes and stuff like that, those I think are scalable. So if you feel great, you can do some intense stuff. And if you are beat up, but you still want to do some sort of flexibility thing, like maybe you just do five minutes of flexibility just to say you did it and to get it done. Um, I think trying to like, I think working flexibility in that has really mm-hmm. worked for me and saying like, I want to make sure no matter what I get this work in today yeah. Yeah. and then, okay, maybe I can let some of this other stuff go. And At just, some yeah. level, I want these things. These are the non-negotiables. Right? Exactly. Right. Yep. And having those, I think to me, that's very important because I want to feel like, I don't, if I set a plan in motion really early, I don't want to feel like I mean, one day is not going to ruin you, right? But I, I, I want to feel like I'm going to design a plan that I can then f- already follow, right? From the like, right. you know, what I mean, so you're designing a plan that you can follow, but then yeah, you're designing in like these are non-negotiables. Like right. I gotta, I gotta do everything in my power to organize my life, right? So that if it's a, a, if it's important enough to me, so like an audition for many people is important to them, right? And so designing a method that you can follow, but then also like kind of organizing your life and your environment in a little bit for a 
short period of time yep. that reflects the fact that the audition is actually the most important thing to you as a player. I think that's those are huge key things that I never really did for a while. And I was like relatively successful. So it's not impossible. But if you're somebody that's saying, I want to do everything I possibly can to be successful, I think these are details that should not be overlooked. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Uh Two hours and sixteen minutes. <laughs> I could keep it going, man. Yeah, no, I think we should uh, we should save some for for a future for, for part for, two. Yeah, for part two someday. Part two. Uh, when I've evolved as a human being and I care, <laughs> I've read like another four books and yeah. we can go talk about something else. I got some recommendations. For yeah. You. Oh, oh, throw them out there. Throw them out there for everybody else who's listening right oh, now. Okay. Yeah. Um, some book recommendations. Yeah, I was kind of kidding, but no, these are some actually really good ones. So. Um, Chopwood Carry Water is a really good one by Joshua Medcalf. Um, it talks about falling in love with a process. Um, it's really, really good. It's short. Um, they're, they're really short little chapters. It's an easy read. Um, I also really enjoy The Savvy Musician. Um, which is, I forget the name of the author. Since I read on my Kindle now, I never have to look at the, t at the covers of books anymore. It just like pops open the, the book. Um, but it talks about the music business and different things like that. Um, I also really like David uh, Cutler, David Cutler. Yes. I, that was on the tip of my Google. brain. Uh, <laughs> the savvy musician is really good. Um, one of the books that I've had my students start reading is uh, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. It's like the word dodge with an I in there, D-O-I-D-G-E. Mm. He's a Canadian neuroscientist and it talks about neuroplasticity, but it, it's a really great sort of beginner book on on learning how our brains learn and change. Mm -hmm. um, but it's written, it's written, it doesn't read like a science book. It reads like a, I don't know like just a interesting nonfiction book. Sure. Um, the brain that changes itself. Um, I've also been, you know, along with this body, mind, spirit thing goes emotional intelligence and uh, the ability to like be able to speak with emotional language. And so I've been having my, my students read a lot of Brene Brown. She's um, wonderful. Especially yeah. rising strong. Yeah. Um, is just such an amazing book. I think, especially for musicians, but it talks it talks about vulnerability. It talks about uh, being able to rise through adversity. It's it's just fantastic. I can't yeah, recommend I can, it highly enough. I can't think of one quality that if everybody embodied it, everything would be better other than vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and it's. I I think if 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 musicians need to be able to talk about something, it's vulnerability. Mm. And it, it, you know, because to really put yourself out there on a stage is like one of the most vulnerable things that you can do. And, um, I, it just, Anyway, yeah. those are those are very fresh on my mind at the moment. Cool. Uh, well, everybody should go check all those books out. Um, if people need to find you, I know you're on Instagram, I am. Uh, probably Facebook. You just want to go through the whole laundry list of ways people can find you. Yeah. So uh, on my website at jeremywilsonmusic.com and then most of my, um, all my um, uh, social media stuff is like Jeremy Wilson trombone. So at Jeremy Wilson trombone on Instagram, facebook.com slash Jeremy Wilson trombone, youtube.com slash Jeremy Wilson trombone. Cool. If you need to get in touch with me, uh, I have a website, that's not spit.com. And I have social media, Facebook and uh, Instagram at that's not spit. 
Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and or other ones on the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and left a review and a rating. That would be pretty cool. Um, I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast, making it sound so great. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Indeed. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye.